How does playing daily fantasy help in season-long leagues? I'll ask Derek Carty from ESPN and Roto-Grinders and the developer of The Bat, daily fantasy projections tool, about that and more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Thursday, April the 12th. It's show number 12 of the 2018 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Thursday full edition for you. We'll have our feature interview with Derek Carty from ESPN and Roto Grinders, and he's the developer of The Bat, a daily fantasy projection system. And we'll be talking about daily fantasy strategy and how it connects with season-long formats. We'll ask him about some over-unders for the 2018 season. He attended MLB's Scout School, and we'll ask how it helps him analyze players, as well as his The Bat draft software and his boons and banes for this season. It's a terrific interview. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols, looking at injuries to Anthony Rizzo, Eugenio Suarez, Scott Schebler, Travis Darnold, and more. And from the American League, Jock Thompson looks at more injuries, Xander Bogarts, Lonnie Chisenhall, Rugnet Odor, and more. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our Minor League Minute, Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon reports on Washington outfield prospect Juan Soto. In our frequent flyer commentary, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Angels right-handed starter Jaime Barilla. And in our pitcher matchup segment, Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick looks at Julius Chassin in New York to face Noah Syndergaard and some other weekend matchups. Later in the show, I'll have our weekly talk with Todd, asking Todd Zola about managing early season developments and the start of the Tout Wars Daily Fantasy Tournament. And finally, in Master Notes, I'll be talking about how to consider batters' exit velocities. It's another big Thursday show. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We've had our first brawls of the season. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Thursday full edition, part one of our feature expert interview with Derek Carty from ESPN and Roto Grinders and the developer of The Bat daily fantasy projection system. Derek, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. It's your first time. I think it is. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Well, we're very excited to have you as well. Uh, I know we're going to probably spend most of our time here today talking about the the daily game because of your uh, profile in that, but uh, do you still play year-long fantasy and how much? Yeah, I've I've scaled back a bit over the past uh, couple years. I used to play in, I don't know, seven or eight leagues per year, and and especially with daily, it just became too much. I wasn't able to, to focus on on that many leagues and give them the attention they deserve. So I play, I think, three leagues now. I play Tout Wars, I play Labor, I play uh, a league with my ESPN colleagues, um, and that's pretty much it. Are they a mixture of leagues, like AL, NL, single league, multi-league, draft, auction, that kind of thing? Do you mix all that stuff up? I'm really not a fan of mixed leagues, so I try to do AL and NL as much as possible. Um, for, for Tout Wars and Labor, I do NL only for both. And uh, both auctions, then? 
both auctions. Also, not a big fan of draft. I like I like the flexibility of the auctions and being able to to structure your roster however you want and having a chance to get every player. Not have to not have to worry that the guy you want isn't going to fall back to you. And I, I far prefer auctions. When uh, Daily Fantasy first started, I remember a lot of discussion about whether it was superior or inferior to playing the season-long games, and personally, I think it's a, a silly conversation to have, play what you want. But uh, the one thing that always struck me is that the pricing structure of not only Daily Fantasy, but the challenge-type games and salary cap games is is in theory or in concept is pretty much the same as an auction except instead of the market at the table setting the price it's the organizer of the game setting the price but ultimately it's still up to you to decide where the value lies as a valuation proposition between what you think and what the market or the game t- uh, price setter sets it's still the same idea you're looking for value at a price that's that's exactly it i mean it's basically an auction where you know what everyone is going to cost ahead of time, and so you can you can structure your roster optimally, you know, according to that. It's it's very similar. And I know uh, one of the things that my friend Gene McCaffrey uh, likes about the challenge games in DFS is that you're not at the mercy of an injury in a, as you are in a season-long game because uh, if you spent $48 or in Tout Ale this year, $54 on Mike Trout, and he you know, blows a hamstring or something like that, you're basically done for the year. And if Mike Trout has a bad game in daily, hey, what the heck, there's always tomorrow. Yeah, that's one of the great things about daily because injuries, I mean, studies are coming out. I know Jeff Zimmerman just did one in, uh, in the forecaster about how how unpredictable injuries are basically and and it's tough in season long especially especially in say like an al league where if you lose mike trout there's no one on the waiver wire anyway to replace him with you're just you're done and in daily that's you know that's not really an issue you know maybe you lose one day but better to lose one day and still have a you know 179 other playable days that you can win as opposed to just being done for the year how are your season-long teams doing so far what are we 10 games in or so yeah, we're about 10 games in. I haven't checked in in a couple days, but last I checked, I was, I think, in like third or fourth in both labor and talent. So, so pretty strong start so far. But as, as I, I said, your focus now is on Daily Fantasy, and I believe it has been for a few years now. When did you start making the move to the Daily Game in earnest to make it a, a, the focus of your fantasy gameplay? I started back in, I think, around 2011, if I were to... If I were to Try to try to guess. Um, it was like right when FanDuel was starting to get big. I did some writing for FanDuel. I started playing for them for a little bit, um, and then I kind of, you know, wasn't super involved in it until maybe five years ago, um, when when I launched the bat my system and I really started playing heavily. Um, it's just I don't know. Like there was something that, like I love season long, but daily just provides so many other unique challenges, and and there is that whole you know, thing that we talked about with the injuries where you're not at the whim of, you know, of a player pulling a hammy. You mentioned the challenges. Uh, every game has its own challenges, uh, not just in fantasy baseball, but in every sort of human undertaking, there's differences. But when you look at the two formats, uh, daily versus season long, where do you see the biggest difference in, ch- in the challenges that the games present? Um, a big part of it is that daily, there's so many factors that that wash out over the course of a season that season-long players don't need to consider, but that can be hugely important for daily players. And so that extra analytical challenge for someone like me really appealed because 
you know, in season long, over the course of the season, uh, you know, a, a player's going to face, you know, a roughly neutral combination of umpires, you know, roughly neutral, you know, weather conditions. But on a daily level, you know, maybe today, you know, Aaron Nola's pitching today. He has an extremely favorable pitching umpire, which makes me like Nola more than I normally would. I like him to begin with, but, like, it makes him that much better, and it's something that you can consider on a daily level and that you have to analyze um, that on a seasonal level just doesn't matter. Yeah, I was thinking about that too when I was looking at the uh, at the daily uh, tout daily lineup that I'm trying to get into right now. There's been some technical problems, but uh, it strikes me as interesting that the the whole point of season long fantasy baseball is to allow those vagaries to even out over time. Not just you mentioned umpires. There's weather, home versus road. There's uh, p- what kind of pitchers are you facing? What kind of teams are you are you facing? All of these factors come into play in daily in a way that they really they do kind of in season long. But you kind of also at the same time you expect that they're going to even out that the that the guy goes uh, you know 0 for 8 in two games sometime in his in his season he's going to go 8 for 8 and and he's going to even that all out or whatever it takes to even out to 300 or whatever he actually is that that's exactly it i mean over the course of the season the player is going to go through ups and downs and and in a season long league you know it evens out you know how good the player is to begin with and and your projection is how good you know you expect him to be over 162 games uh, in daily, you know, you can have a player that is, you know, really, really good that you expect to be really good over the course of a whole season, but that particular day, maybe you don't expect him to be that good because all the factors are stacked against him. And there will be, you know, uh, you know, a, a day, you know, maybe in a couple weeks where it's the complete opposite, where all the factors are on his side, and and that's how it evens out over the course of the season. But on any day, you know, it's important to analyze those specific factors, and it's it adds a you know a kind of analytical rigor that. Um, that we don't necessarily have in season long. Well, you mentioned that there are these factors, and you did say umpires, and uh, of course, for for hitters, I imagine the overwhelmingly most important factor is the, the pitcher that they'll be facing, or perhaps nowadays we should say the whole pitching staff that they're going to be facing, because so few starters get deep enough into games that that you can really place more than two and a half sort of at bats at the feet of that particular pitcher before they get into the bullpen. How, how has the change in in uh, pitcher usage affected your ability to to form forecast or predict or place these uh, probabilities on hitters, given the fact that you used to know that they'd face a, a pitcher three times in a game, now it's uh, sometimes only two. Yeah, so I mean, it's important to project uh, not just a starting pitcher, but the bullpens, like you said. So so I'll project a hitter against, against the pitcher, and I'll project him against each individual reliever in the bullpen, and then I kind of weigh it depending on, um, you know, first I, I project how deep I expect a pitcher to go in the game based on how long of a leash his manager usually gives him, how well he's projected to pitch in that game, what kind of outcomes he's going to have. You know, so a pitcher who, uh, you know, who's projected to walk a lot of guys today and give up a lot of runs, well, his pitch count's going to get driven up really quickly. He's giving up runs, he's letting guys get on base, walks really drive up pitch counts because they're just, you know, a bunch of pitches that, that amount to nothing. Um, and, so, uh, and so, you know, maybe I'd project him to, to not throw a lot of innings that day and the bullpen to throw a lot. And so... I project the hitter based on facing the pitcher, you know, however many times, you know, over the over four innings or whatever I'm projected for, and then the bullpen for the rest. So it's, it's you know, like I said, it, there's unique challenges with DFS, and I think that bullpen component is a really fun one. 
And I think it's one that may be underappreciated a little bit, at least when I talk with friends of mine who play, they they know that they want to look at the starting pitcher, but I sometimes wonder if they look far enough into the starting pitcher, whether he's good or bad, by the way. if uh, It seems to me that if the, if the hitter that you're considering for your lineup is facing a weak pitcher, you might say, well, that's in his favor. But on the other hand, if you know, if you project that the that this pitcher is going to walk a lot of guys, have an early pitch count surge, maybe he's out of the game after the fourth inning, and they turn it over to a above average bullpen, all of a sudden this guy goes from being what looks like a pretty decent bet to what looks like not so good of a bet. Yeah, exactly. I mean, people really bullpen is one of the most overlooked things. But you can turn, you know, if you have you know a four ERA pitcher with a really good bullpen. Now all of a sudden, maybe maybe the hitter's facing instead of you know a four ERA, he's facing you know a three five ERA or something like that, and that makes a big difference. What are some of the other big factors beyond the pitchers? You mentioned the umpires, another thing that's only now coming into vogue as something we really need to be looking closely at. Uh, obviously, there are park effects. How do you rank these factors in making, I assume, marginal-type decisions? You have a pretty good idea of which hitters interest you or which pitchers interest you, but what factors do you look at when you're making those fine-tuning final choices? Yeah, I mean, the great thing about about the way my system works is that everything's weighed organically. So parks are important, umpires are important, pitch framing is important, defense is important, the opposing pitcher and bullpen. But uh, it's not like I'm saying, okay, well, I think the pitcher needs to be weighed this much, and I think the park needs to be weighed this much. No, like I look at the pitcher and I say, okay, you know, this pitcher, you know, based on his projection is expected to you know, inflate home runs by 6%, and the park's expected to inflate runs by 12%. Uh, And, you know, the the catcher's framing should, you know, decrease strikeouts by 2% or, like, whatever it is. And then it's just, it gets applied based on that. It gets applied based organic, you know, organically based on, you know, whatever the effect of each factor is. So when you uh, assume that you're looking for, um, what's the word I'm searching for, like optimal pricing situations, do you actually place a, a price, say for a DraftKings draft, do you look at the pitcher or hitter and say, based on my projection, he's going to be worth $3,400 today, and it turns out his price is um, 3000 all of a sudden that's a, like a plus 400 guy, or is it uh, more complicated than that? No, it's pretty much as simple as that. I don't do it exactly in those terms, but... You know, I will I will project the exact points for the player. You know, Mike Trout's projected for 11.23 points today, and he costs, you know, $5,500 or whatever it is. And then based on that, you can see what, what kind of a value he is. Um, and I tend to run my stuff through, through a lineup optimizer. So the lineup optimizer will find, okay, these are the players that are projected for a lot of points and are, you know, a good combination, I guess, of points and, you know, and low salary. And so, so that's kind of how I go about building my lineup. Now, I can see that uh, doing DFS-type planning could help season-long players who have the advantage of streaming players, especially on a daily basis. But even on a weekly basis, you can look at a lot of those same factors and make decisions about which pitchers you want to bench and which ones you want to go live. But what other advantages do you think playing one format helps the other in both directions? Yeah, I mean, for, for one thing, I mean, in daily, it makes you... It makes you pay attention to everyone. And season long, a lot of people, you know, they tend to just focus mostly on on their own players. You know, the players on their team are the ones that they're watching the most. Uh, but in daily, because your team is changing every single day, you're paying attention to 
you know, a wider range of players and a wider range of teams, uh, which I think can help you in season long because now now you're paying attention more. You're saying, okay, well, I'm playing this guy a lot lately and daily. Like, why is that? Um, and then maybe maybe it's because he's good. Maybe it's because he's undervalued by by the market or by the public or or whatever it is. And then maybe in your season long league, you know, maybe you go try to trade for that guy. Maybe you can get him for for a cheaper price than than you thought you could. Do you find, uh, speaking of uh, players that you seem to be playing a lot, do you find that that happens pretty regularly, that certain players rise to the top of the table at a particular position and you say to yourself after maybe, you know, five or ten games, you say, geez, I seem to have played, uh, you know, uh, Adam Jones seven out of the last ten games, and then check to see why that's why that's so? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there, there's guys that, that I wind up playing a lot more than other guys. Garrett Richards, I've played every single start this year because for whatever reason, DraftKings has him priced really, really low. But I think Garrett Richards is a top 15 pitcher in baseball. And so, you know, I have him in, or I have him in some of my season-long leagues, you know, the mixed ones that I'm in. Um, but, uh, you know, if, if I wasn't already a big Richards fan or I didn't know that I liked him that much, and I see myself playing him every single time out, I'd be like, hey, I should go get me some Garrett Richards in my season-long league. Well, we mentioned the fact that the um, in in auction formats of fantasy baseball, it's the people at the table who set the price, and in uh, challenge games and salcap cap games and in daily, of course, it's the company that sets the price. And I'm wondering what kind of insight you have into how they set that price. Are they trying to reflect the market in the in the way that they think that uh, the way Las Vegas sets uh, sets its odds? Or are they legitimately doing the same thing you're doing and saying this guy should be around 18 points at $72 a point? That's you know 5,600 bucks. Or what? What do you know about how they set those prices and why they're slow to respond sometimes? Yeah, they're. Uh, it's kind of a black box. We don't know exactly how they're setting the prices, and I think different sites take different approaches to it. Um, a site like FanDuel will will keep their prices kind of soft. They won't change them up that much. Um, they'll make it so that you can roster, you know, kind of an all-star team. Whereas DraftKings is a little bit more dynamic with their pricing. They seem to to reflect the matchups more. You know, when the Rockies are in Coors Field, they're going to cost a lot more than they're going to cost when they're on the road. Um, and I, you know, it seems like you know if a guy was is starting to see you know really high ownership, you know, people are rostering him a lot. Maybe his price will go up because the site will will realize, okay, like we have him priced a little bit too low. But but there's really no no clear there's no clarity when it comes to it. We're kind of just guessing how they're doing it. Seems like if you could figure that out, how they're doing it, it could really be an advantage to you in deciding where the uh, where the efficiencies are or the inefficiencies are in the market. Yeah, yeah, I never thought about it that way. Um, yeah, I, I would think you probably could. What it, what it really comes down to at the end, though, is just, you know, where the value is. And so, so if you can identify where, you know, where their weakness is and where, where the value is, that's, that's how you're going to win. One of the criticisms of DFS, uh, Derek, has been that average Joes like me can't really compete in the bigger money games because those games are just dominated by Sharks and Quants and Wall Street guys and stuff. Uh, players who are essentially professional DFS owners, uh, how does that criticism strike you and what's been your response to it over the, over the time you've played? I think it's, it's kind of an unfair criticism. Um, yes, there are people who are doing this for a living and they're very good. 
and they're playing lots of money every single day. But if you have a strong process, it is definitely possible to compete with these guys. You know, I, I see myself. I run out of lineup with the bat every single night, and I look at what some of the some of the real real sharks out there are running. And and it's always very similar to the plays that I'm running. Like the process, I think, is very similar between between the bat and what a lot of these sharks are doing. You know, at least once a week, I'll see myself with the exact same lineup as you know some of the some of the top guys. And and I think some people too they get bogged down a little bit in 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 wanting to win like that big tournament. You know, they they put in you know their five dollars, their twenty dollars, and they compete against ten thousand people, and the winner you know gets gets a hundred thousand dollars that night. And and of course people aren't going to be winning that very often because there's so many people playing it, um, and, and so they're like, oh well, there's all these sharks, like I can't win. You're not gonna you're not gonna not win because of all the sharks. You're gonna not win because because just the law of large numbers. You're playing against so many people, like your your odds of winning, even if you weren't playing sharks, are so small just by the law of large numbers. And and I think that gets lost on some people. Um, and and there's other contests too. Like DFS isn't necessarily like this get rich quick scheme where you you, sh- you think you're going to put in a lineup and you're going to get rich one night. You're going to put in your twenty dollars and you're going to win a hundred thousand. Like it doesn't work that way. It's a long season. You kind of have to grind it out a little bit, um, and you have to pick the right contest. I mean, there are single entry contests where where the sharks don't get to put in you know you know a hundred entries each. They each get to put in one, the same as you. And and so a lot of it comes down to to game selection, and that's you know, one of the one of the DFS topics that's not sexy at all. People don't like to talk about it. They like to talk about whether you should play Mike Trout or Bryce Harper tonight. But but game selection is actually huge and, and is one of the keys to actually being a profitable player. And by that you mean uh, choosing your choosing whether to play tournaments or double ups or fifty fifties or whatever and grinding away ten dollars at a time rather than throwing a hundred in and hoping for a million out. Yeah, exactly. If you're just trying to throw a dart and hope that you're gonna, you know, Ten times or hundred times your money, you know, you're probably not going to. If you can, if you can actually figure out the contests that are the most profitable, um, and play in those, and be okay with grinding out a smaller profit, um, you know, you're going to be more profitable over the long term. Sounds like what they say about playing poker. It's uh, it's the guys who play well consistently over the long run that do best. What kind of uh, what kind of annual return could you make on the money you're putting up? Do you think if you were a if you were a good but careful player who's choosing his games wisely, are you talking about a what kind of return? Uh, it's lower than it used to be. I mean, people are getting smarter. The edge is getting smaller. Um, but if, at the end of the year, if you were to total up all of your entry fees. Um, if you're making, uh, you know, 10% on that, total up all your entry fees, a 10% ROI on that would be a really good goal and a fairly reasonable goal, I think. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick David here with Derek Carty from ESPN and Roto Grinders and the the Bat, which we'll be talking about for a projection system. And Derek, you write regularly for ESPN's Fantasy Insider section. Uh, how long have you been writing for the Worldwide Leader? Oh, I think this is uh, this is year four now. Wow, it's crazy how fast time goes. This is year four. Um, year, you know, a couple years back, I was doing I was doing the writing and I was doing the TV stuff, uh, you know, on baseball tonight, which was a lot of fun. Um, but uh, this is year four of writing now. It's crazy. 
Before the season, you wrote a piece not so much about fantasy baseball, but about using your projection tool, the bat I just mentioned, to bet the over-unders that, that Vegas was putting out there. Uh, let's start with the Yankees. They're projected for 94.5 wins. That was the over-under line. You took them the over, and pretty handsomely, too. What was it about the Yankees that attracted you? They're just good. They're yeah. just good. They, they made are. a lot of good uh, a lot of good moves this offseason. You know, Stanton is obviously huge, but some under-the-radar moves, too. Like, Neil Walker, they signed for, what, like $5 million or something crazy? And Neil Walker's a very good hitter and, uh, and projects really well in that park. Uh, I think Luis Severino is one of the more underrated pitchers in the game. I think he is almost, almost, almost at that, like, Max, Max Scherzer, Corey Kluber level. And, and their bullpen is just phenomenal. So, like, I think the Yankees are really good to begin with. And, uh, and I think uh, the AL East in particular, uh, the way their schedule works out, um, is something that, that really, I think, basically I took the over on every AL, every AL East team. So, like, I took the over on the Blue Jays, took the over on the Orioles, took the over on the Red Sox, uh, on the Rays. Uh, the way their schedule works out this year, in interleague play, they're playing the, the National League East. National League East is filled with a bunch of, a bunch of bad teams. It's the Braves and the Marlins and the Phillies. And, and, uh, and so the Yankees have a really favorable strength of schedule that I think Vegas wasn't taking into account. I was surprised to see so many American League East teams over because you'd think there'd be a certain amount of fratricide going on within the division. Everybody's playing each other, and uh, some of them are going to come out ahead of others. But, of course, the uh, the interleague is starting to have an effect, much the way in the NFL that the strength of schedule of sort of varies from season to season because of who get who they get to play uh, in the other conference and in the other divisions. I think that's a really interesting angle that people don't consider deeply enough. You had the White Sox, on the other hand, way under. Vegas says 72 wins, which is not that great of a season in the first place, and you've got them way under that. What's wrong with the White Sox? Uh, they're kind of the anti-Yankees. They're just <laughs> they're not good. They have, they have one above-average hitter in the entire lineup. They have they have Jose Abreu, and, you know, they're basically their second or their third best hitter is their pitcher, Wellington Castillo. Like, their offense is just, it's just bad. And, and they're having Castillo as, you know, as their starting catcher now. Castillo's a really, really bad pitch framer. Um, you know, he's really going to hurt the pitching staff. You know, not a, you know, from anecdotally speaking, at least not a good game caller either. And so, uh, so really, it's just a matter of, of the, the you know the West not having a whole lot of talent right now. Now they're they're rebuilding, and I think they're going to be good in a couple of years because they're doing it the right way. They have a lot of a really a lot of really interesting young guys, but you know unless those guys you know speed up their development, I don't really see them winning a lot of games this year. A lot of baseball's talking heads were enthusiastic about the Braves, but you came under the Vegas line of 75.5 wins. Again, not a very lofty wins total to beat, and you say they're not going to beat it. Why are you pessimistic about a team that so many people like, and they've got Ozzy Albies and Acuna's on the way? It looks like uh, things are looking pretty rosy for the Braves. You don't agree. Yeah, so part of it is, is the strength of schedule thing. You know, I, I have all the overs on the AL East because they're facing the NL East in early play which means teams like the Braves are facing teams like the Yankees and the Red Sox this year. So, so that, you know, the NL East teams like the Braves have, have a really tough strength of schedule. Um, and part of it, too, is that I think people just get, they get overly optimistic about young prospects like Albies, like Acuna. Like, these guys are great prospects, yes, and there's the potential for them to be stars one day. 
but expecting them to be stars right now is completely unreasonable. You look at every single projection system out there pretty much, and these guys are projected to be, you know, above average hitters, but not not stars, not even necessarily like legitimately good hitters yet. And and they'll probably get there, but expecting them to be that now is just unreasonable and I think uh I think that hype kind of you know, gets overblown. I think the same thing is true in fantasy baseball. You see some pretty lofty prices going for some pretty unproven talent. How well do you think fantasy players do in valuing and rostering touted rookies like Acuna, who may not even have roster spots? And uh, how much of the different, how much difference is there between pitchers and hitters as prospects and rookies? I mean, fantasy players are are notoriously, I think at least, um, you know, known to to overdraft rookies. Like I. I don't have any shares of Acuna. I don't have any shares of Albi. I, I very rarely have shares of any highly touted rookie. Um, people just, they, they see the upside and they see the hype, and, and they, they pay for that. But the price that they're paying, like the rookie or the, you know, the hyped young guy, basically has to make good on his promise you know, for them to make value. Um, it's just, the, the value is just not there. I prefer... I prefer boring veterans that you know what you're going to get from them and that people are undervaluing because they're boring. Like that, That's, I think, how you win your leagues. Yeah, I heard one guy say one time that people, when they pay for these uh, these rookies with inflated prices, really you're buying the ceiling and not 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 understanding the risk of the floor. And I think that's a pretty good way of putting it. That the the prices that some of these rookies go for, they have to be stars to justify it. I mean, some some of these guys are going fifteen, eighteen, twenty dollars in drafts. That's a pretty good player. And boy, oh boy, they have to really hit the ground running and they have to keep running the whole season. That's a very seems like a very risky proposition. Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, that's a good way of putting it. People are paying people are paying for the ceilings and and that's just not the way you should be doing it. I was also a little surprised, Eric, that you had uh, the under on Colorado's 81-and-a-half game, Vegas projected uh, over-under line. Uh, the Rockies, again, are a team that a lot of baseball's talking heads seem to like. Why are you so down on the Rockies? A lot of it is just that I, I'm not a big fan of their offense. Um, you know, they have a couple stars in Blackman and Arenado, but you look at the rest of their offense, and they don't have anyone that great. Their numbers look really great because, of course, field. But they have a bunch of guys, you know, who project to be league average hitters, you know, Gerardo Parra and, and Chris Iannetta and, and these other guys who, who project basically to have league average lines for the course of the entire season. And that's with the, with Coors Field, you know, baked into their numbers. You know, you adjust for Coors Field and you look at the actual talent in this offense and it's, it's a, it's a below average offense. It really is. Um, and so, so that's, that's kind of where it comes from for me. Like I just, I'm not a big believer in in this offense being being great on their own merit. And finally, Derek, uh, I wonder. Just I know it's only ten or so games into the season, but has any team come out of the gate in such a way that makes you think that maybe it would be worth reevaluating your position on any of them for good or ill? Not really, just because. Uh, I mean, ten games into the season. We, you know, projections for players aren't going to change. The sample sizes are so small. The only thing that really that can change it is roles and health. So, you know, if there's a team where I'm even trying to think, I can't think of anything right now. I mean, the Brewers just lost Christian Yelich for a couple of weeks, but I wasn't really big on the Brewers to begin with. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, unless, unless 
something with health or roles are really changing, there's not a whole lot that's going to change over the course of the week. Okay, Derek, this has been great so far. If you can hang on, we'll have you back a little later on in the show. Thanks a lot. Derek Carty writes for ESPN and Roto Grinders, and he's the developer of the BAT Daily Fantasy Projection System. He'll be back a little later on in the show, but coming up next are Market Watch reports, player news from the National League and the American League, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Two balls and two strikes on it. Here's the pitch on the way, a swing and a foul! Left field, way back! Blue Jays And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Market Watch Player News Reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with news from the American League. And leading off, it's our National League Report with Baseball HQ analyst Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. We start off with one of the biggest names in fantasy baseball, first-rounder or near-first-rounder in a lot of drafts. Anthony Rizzo has been missing some time with back issues. Uh, First of all, who's going to be playing first base for Chicago while Rizzo's on the shelf? Well, uh They've been playing with their catchers in terms of giving them first base time. Victor Caratini uh, and Wilson Contreras both getting additional time with Rizzo with Rizzo injured. Uh, and in fact, what that means is on most uh, days while, while Rizzo was out, both Caratini and uh, Contreras had been in the lineup. Yeah, I saw that they, uh, they're mostly putting Caratini out there, but then every so often he'll go back behind the plate and they'll put Contreras at first base. Might be interesting if uh, either or both of them get some first base eligibility, not that you'd want to swap a guy out of catcher to first base, but flexibility is always nice. Uh, is there any news about Anthony Rizzo's uh, pending return from the DL? They're, they're hoping that he'll be back uh, on Monday, which I think is the first day that he's eligible. Uh, you know, the, 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 the scary thing, of course, is that back injuries are the kind of things that can linger. So it's one of those things to watch as he, once he returns to see if it affects his performance. Uh, backs are always kind of a troublesome uh, and scary sort of injury. They are, especially for power hitters, because so much of the power is generated by the hips transferring uh, energy through the back. And uh, we've all seen back injuries really claim some power. Miguel Cabrera jumps immediately to mind. However, we should point out that uh, Anthony Rizzo had an MRI. It came back clean, so it wasn't uh, deemed to be a real serious problem. Maybe just, you know, sometimes you get a backache from sitting wrong or something like that. Let's hope that's the case for Anthony Rizzo. Uh, Speaking of uh, infielders, corner infielders in particular, Eugenio Suarez uh, of Cincinnati, their third baseman, he's gone to the DL. Uh, to quote uh, Abaddon Costello, who's on third? Right, yeah, you, you know, that's that's been a mess for uh, for Cincinnati, trying to figure all of that out and, and, and move guys around. And the real story here may be uh, what's happening with, with uh, top prospect Nick Senzel. Uh, Senzel was moved to, uh, supposed to play third base uh, at AAA Louisville on Tuesday night. And that seemed to be a signal that they may be getting him ready. He played, uh, been, been playing second base, been playing some shortstop because they didn't anticipate getting him up to, uh, to Cincinnati as a third baseman. But uh, shifted to, to third base on Tuesday night, and sometime this week he'll pass that uh, magic date uh, at which they'll have an extra year of team control uh, before they bring him up. So I wouldn't be surprised at all if we see Nick Senzel as the, the real playing time gainer 
uh, while Suarez is out, and he may be up sooner than later. Uh, if I were in a league where Senzel were sitting out there, I'd sort of grab him uh, before the news gets out that, in fact, he's coming up. Tom Kephart covered this for Playing Time today. He mentioned that uh, third baseman Alex Blandino was recalled from Class AAA Louisville in a corresponding move when uh, when Eugenio Suarez was sent to the DL. Are we thinking that maybe Alex Blandino is not a guy we should be targeting as a, a fab pickup or a waiver wire claim? Yeah, I think that's exactly what we're thinking. If you look at our projections on Alex Blandino, uh, we're projecting a total of 55 at-bats for the season, uh, 234 batting average. This is simply not a guy that's going to help you much in fantasy, and we don't even think he's going to get much playing time. So uh, at this point, we haven't increased the playing time on Blandino uh, at all as a result of this injury. Uh, the real gain has been to Jesse Winker as guys get shifted around. But as I said, I think really what we're going to see is Sinzel coming up uh, sooner rather than later. Suarez is going to lose 35% of his playing time, according to Baseball HQ's analysts. So that's a lot of playing time to lose, which means there's going to be a lot of opportunity in there somewhere. Tom Kephart's coverage of Cincinnati in that same story about Suarez also pointed out that Scott Schebler is going uh, on the DL as well. What's going to happen with that? Now, more musical chairs in the outfield, it sounds yeah, like. Yeah, more musical chairs in the outfield, and that's, that's going to be a, like a 25% playing time loss we've given Shebler as a result of that, and that's, of course, going to increase Jesse Winker's uh, time out there. So uh, they've, they've got some real holes to deal with as they're trying to, to juggle bo- injuries to both uh, Suarez and to deal with Shebler. Shebler's on the shelf with a fractured right thumb and a right ulnar nerve contusion, a bruised elbow on the funny bone, it sounds like. But boy, that can really be painful, and it sometimes lingers. It does indeed, and those, uh, those fra- thumb fractures, of course, can affect someone once they, once they come back. Oddly enough, uh, although they've lost an outfielder, looks like Billy Hamilton is not going to be a huge beneficiary of playing time. We've got him down for a further 5% loss in the aftermath of Shebler's loss, which seems weird. But, uh, of course, Billy Hamilton's struggling again this year. He is. He's struggling to get on base. I mean, Billy Hamilton is uh, Billy Hamilton is a, uh, is, is a is great when he's on the base path, but he's got to get on base first uh, and has been struggling to start the season. So... Uh, may in fact wind up with uh, with less playing time uh, until he can can figure out more of what needs to go on to get him get himself on base. Speaking of elbow injuries, Travis Darno, uh, the Mets catcher, boy, this poor guy, he's had nothing but injuries his whole career. Now he's got a partial tear of his UCL in his elbow. And it was announced uh, uh, the other night, I was listening to a, a game on Sirius XM, and they said he will be having Tommy John surgery, so that uh, means Travis Darno is done for the year, minimum this year, and probably part of next year as well. Uh, that makes Kevin Plowicki the clear starting catcher now. It does indeed. And, and we, had, we had been speculating on that. Kevin Plowicki's seen a lot, of, uh, a lot of fab pickup, I think, in the last, uh, in the last week or so. Uh, and it does look indeed like Clement Wicke is going to be the, the main catcher for the rest of the season uh, for the Mets because of the injury to, uh, to Darno. Uh, Clement Wicke is not a guy that I think you want to necessarily jump on right away. We've got him projected right now at 380 at-bats and producing a total of zero rotor dollars in a 4x4 in a four four and $2 in a 5x5 five five kind of situation. But uh, nine home runs, 43 RBIs, 240 batting average, uh, not real great for a full-time catcher. On the upside, uh, Ploiecki in AAA had 750-ish plate appearances, hit nearly 300, had an 810 OPS, albeit this all was taking place in Las Vegas, which is a pretty hitter-friendly park. Uh, Kevin Ploiecki, 
Uh, we're giving him 20% of the playing time. Also a call-up named Thomas Nido. And uh, I wonder if we know anything about him that makes him uh, worth looking at as a fab pickup. Our, again, our projections, I think, on Nido are not are not fabulous. They're actually worse than Plowicki. Uh, we're projecting uh, Nido for a 200, 209 batting average. Uh, two home runs, 18 RBIs, and 117 at-bats. So, uh, again, not the kind of guy I think that you, you want as your second catcher, uh, even given the wasteland that's out there for, for second catchers uh, in leagues that require two. Thomas Nido was uh, actually covered in uh, the call-ups report. Boy, that daily call-ups report, Nick, at BaseballHQ.com is so valuable nowadays with so many prospects being called up because of these injuries. Uh, they said uh, he's an interesting player. He was a batting champion in the pitcher-friendly Florida State League in 2016, but when he got called up to AA, he had trouble making contact. And, of course, that's what happens in baseball, right? A guy shines at, at A ball and gets called up, and he immediately gets overmatched, which is not a terrific sign. You want to see them keep performing. Now, there's one other issue that has come up. Uh, Kevin Ploiecki, the apparent incumbent, was hit on the hand by a pitch on Wednesday and taken out of the game. They x-rayed his hand. It's negative for a break, and they have an off day Thursday. So the analysis at BaseballHQ.com is to consider Ploiecki day-to-day, but he still could miss some time, so start looking around for alternatives in the catcher Yeah, very definitely. And Thomas Snyder looks like he's going to get the playing time over the weekend. In Milwaukee, an interesting situation brewing in the bullpen. Nick Corey Knabel, their closer, has hurt his hamstring, and it looked bad. And it was bad, according to Doug Dennis, our bullpen's colonist. He's going to be out at least a month, which provides an opportunity, of course, for some saves. And we uh, thought, and uh, Doug thought, that Jacob Barnes and Josh Hader would be lining up to capture most of those saves. But Doug also mentioned a dark horse candidate, and sure enough, the dark horse candidate got a save. Sure enough, the dark horse candidate is Matt Albers, and he got the save on... uh on Wednesday night. And, uh, you know, it's one of those situations where the manager's got to juggle that bullpen and get not only uh, the save in the ninth inning, but get to the ninth inning. Uh, and he may, in fact, uh, prefer Barnes and Hayter to get him to the ninth and then Albers to close things out. At least that's what, what we're looking at on Wednesday night. It's still an unclear situation in Milwaukee, uh, but Matt Albers is not a bad not a bad uh, uh, candidate for saves during the time that uh, Knable is out. I mean, last year, Albers a 129 BPV, a 1.62 uh, uh, earn run average, a, a uh, 3.19 XERA. So uh, not not a bad dude. Uh, 9.3 DOM, 3.7 command. Uh, command. So uh, Albers can do the job perhaps over the next uh, month or so. And certainly if you're looking for saves and are speculating on that Milwaukee bullpen, Albers is also a guy to look at. And finally, Nick, uh, we have a new columnist at BaseballHQ.com, former general manager Brad Coleman is now the uh, commentator in the Market Pulse column, and there's a new format which looks really sharp. It does. I really like the format, looking at that Market Pulse column last week. Uh, set up in uh, the, the column was set up in four sections, uh, looking at, at the bull market for guys who are in, uh, uh, in mixed leagues, uh, shallow leagues, guys who have been claimed in the last, uh, the last week, looking at a bull market for guys in deep leagues, uh, looking at a bear market, those guys have been dropped, and and mentioning uh, if guys are getting dropped, you know, sometimes that's a, that's a chance to pick somebody up. Uh, and then uh, looking at uh, the pre-market, which I, I really liked that particular segment, uh, when he looks at guys who are just starting to get noticed uh, and maybe somebody you want to look at now uh, before your league makes jump on them. Uh, so I really like that new column. For example, under the pre-market segment, Joey Lucchese from uh, San Diego was one. Uh, looks like and look. He's made a couple, two really nice starts now. Uh, 
virtually before San Diego in a great park. So uh, that's the kind of thing the pre-column is going to look at. Uh, and so I really recommend the new column. It was, uh, it was a nice piece of work. Baseball HQ's coverage of Joy Lucchese also included a call-ups report. I mentioned that earlier, what a valuable resource the call-ups reports are. They come out every day, and Nick Richards is one of our analysts in the call-ups area, and he looked at Joy Lucchese as well. What did Nick Richards say about this San Diego left-hander? Call-ups report on Joy Lucchese, a, a 7B rating, which means a, uh, uh, not, a not an all-star, but a very solid kind of performer. Uh, and with that B rating, certainly someone who has a chance to reach his potential as a, as a kind of a back end uh, minor major league starter, uh, career whipping command are, are outstanding. Uh, 1.99 ERA, 0.934 whip in two seasons in the minor leagues, uh, and those are very good numbers. Although certainly not at uh, uh, not not at um, a major league level, but uh, off to a great start. 1.72 ERA in three games. Uh, 9.2 DOM, 2.3 control. So pitching very well to start the year. But of course, you've got to remember this is the first time that these guys have seen him. And uh, who knows what will happen the second and third time around. It's interesting that you mentioned the fact that it's the, his first time through the uh, league. And that advantage is maybe even uh, heightened by the fact that he has a really funky delivery. Nick Richards said he's very deceptive. And the description that he gave of uh, Joy Lucchese is that despite the fact he can bring it at 95 miles an hour, he's mostly in the low 90s. And he kind of described him as a uh, as a finesse lefty who can throw the ball, you know, 90 plus. It's an interesting combination. He's one of those guys who has the knack of keeping ahead of hitters, keeping them guessing at the plate, which is half the battle, really, if you if you can't, if, if you're in the dish and, and you can't determine what the next pitch is going to be by guessing a pattern because he's mixing it up out there. And he does have a three-pitch mix. Uh, Joy Lucchese could be somebody to jump on uh, based on the call-ups report and then on course on Brad Coleman's analysis of Lucchese as a pre-market snap-up. Boy, I think if I was in a National League league or even a mixed league, I'd be taking a long look at this kid. Yeah, I think so, definitely. Certainly uh, certainly for the uh, the first few times he goes through the league, Lucchese is going to be somebody who could have some real success. Uh, and it, and who knows, it may even continue as he, as you, as you mentioned, if he's the kind of guy that makes hitters guess a lot uh, and with his funky delivery, uh, might be more successful than we would have projected him to be based on the, on the speed at which he throws the ball. I should just say that uh, Brad Coleman's other pre-market pickup uh, recommendations are Jordan Hicks, the right-handed uh, pitcher in St. Louis, Aledmus Diaz, the Toronto shortstop, is going to get a lot of playing time, Yanni Chirinos uh, in Tampa Bay, the pitcher, you know, uh, Nick, at uh, Tout Wars in the American League draft, Yanni Chirinos was actually a, a guy that was competed for, so this is all pretty interesting, and, uh, and I really like this Brad Coleman column, and I'm going to for sure keep looking at it. Yeah, very definitely. I, I know the new the new format is uh, easy to grasp and easy to read, uh, and should allow you to jump on some players before everybody else in your league sees them. I also liked the uh, idea of the uh, of the bull market versus bear market, which allows you to look at guys who are being picked up. And Brad says, "Hey, you know, maybe slow down here. Just because everybody thinks these are good pickups, they might not be." And then the bear market, as you mentioned, uh, this is players who are being dumped. And again, Brad's saying, "Well, wait a second. Maybe maybe there's some impatience going on here. There could be buying opportunities." Nick, thanks a million for helping us out this week. Uh, we'll catch up with you again in a week's time with more news from the National League. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and covers the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now it's over to the American League and BaseballHQ.com writer and director of news and analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Hey, PD. How you doing? 
I'm doing better than they are in Major League Baseball with these injuries. I spent most of the uh, discussion with uh, Harold Nichols talking about injuries in the National League, and they're coming fast and furious in the American League as well. Uh, perhaps no bigger name in the injury department than in Boston, where Xander Bogarts, who's off to a terrific start, he's out of the lineup now with a small crack in an ankle bone. They're calling it at least 10 days to two weeks, could be longer. He's out of his walking boot already, which I guess is a positive sign. But what is Boston going to do at shortstop in his absence and in the longer term, should he not be able to return quickly? Yeah, you're right. This was a big loss for, uh, for the Red Sox. He was scorching hot in the early going uh, in its place so far. It's been Brock Holt at shortstop. It's uh, pretty much a, a known bench utility commod- commodity, and he, and he hasn't really offered us much reason to roster him uh, over the past couple of years, unless perhaps this injury is more serious and and Holt can get extended playing time. Eduardo Nunez would be another option, but he's holding down second base as Dustin Pedroia remains out. So we'll have to see how this works out longer term if uh, if Bogarts misses extended time. Uh, speaking of middle infield problems, how about in Texas? The Rangers lost second baseman Rugnet Odor to a hamstring strain earlier in the week, and then just the other night, Elvis Andrews broke his elbow on a 97-mile-an-hour fastball hitting him from Keenan Middleton of the Angels. Rod Truesdell had been already covering the Odor situation in playing time today at BaseballHQ.com, but how is Texas going to deal with what ba- amounts to double trouble? You know, probably not very well from where I sit. Uh, Odor is expected to miss about three weeks. Andrus now potentially longer. And this is a team that, from where I sat and watched them this week, doesn't seem to be going anywhere to begin with. The the, the big winner here looks like uh, Jerickson Profar, who, of course, was once considered the best prospect in all of baseball about four years ago before some serious back issues and surgeries and lost seasons, seemed to have sapped his talent. Uh, Profar is likely going to get his first extended uh, playing time since uh, the injuries to show what he has left at 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 least one of these spots. And uh, while his plate skills look as though they're intact, uh, he's still not hitting the ball with much authority. Uh, For owners needing middle infield help, he might be worth a speculation just on his one-time pedigree, but I'm pretty ambivalent about his outlook until I see something different. Uh, I'm really not sure what Texas does now with both regular middle infielders out. My guess is that... uh, uh, Hanser Alberto is already on a plane from AAA, but I haven't seen an announcement yet. Uh, he's your run-of-the-mill uh, bench infielder, nothing special. They also have another utility type already on the roster. Uh, is he a Kiner Falefa? I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. He hasn't been up very long. Um, not much major league uh, ready talent on this roster. Uh, uh, it's kind of the, the curse of baseball right now. Um, there's a lot of mediocre teams. And uh, this injuries, these injuries are going to hurt, both offensively and defensively. They're going to hurt the Rangers. Any uh, help on the farm? Uh, you mentioned Isaiah Kiner-Falefa, if that's how you say it, uh, was the immediate call-up, which surprised a few people, considering there are better options, it seems, available to Texas, notwithstanding perhaps they're worried about uh, playing time issues and, uh, and service time issues as far as their talent goes. It's still a little early in the season. It might cost you a year of control. Yeah, I'm just not seeing that Texas has any MLB-ready talent uh, available. Profar was it, and when and when both Odor and Andrus go down, uh, he's pressed into service. So now you've got uh, an open position, and, and you've got two guys who really the best they should be doing is on an MLB bench. So um, not a lot of not a lot of, not a lot to look at here. 
I was actually thinking about Willie Calhoun, the top prospect that a lot of people thought should have been on the Rangers roster right from the start of the regular season. Maybe he's down there for service time reasons. I'm not sure about that. But aren't there ways that Texas could juggle things to make sure that uh, Willie Calhoun got a shot right away? Well, they're probably doing that, and they're they're trying to give him defensive reps, uh, and and service time is part of it. Obviously, like I said, I don't think Texas is going anywhere. What could happen, I guess, is that they could uh, they could start playing Robinson reportedly, maybe at second base. He he wouldn't be awful there. He wouldn't be great. Uh, but if they really wanted to stick a bat in the lineup, you're right. They could bring up Willie Calhoun and and perhaps stick him in uh, in the outfield, uh, bringing Robinson into the middle infield. Another injury, this one not affecting a middle infielder in Cleveland, Lonnie Chisenhall. A lot of touts liked Lonnie Chisenhall coming into this year based on what he did last year before he got hurt. He's going to be on the DL for six weeks or so with a calf strain. Uh, that was something he had trouble with last year. Uh, Tom Kephart analyzed the situation in playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. How is Cleveland going to do without uh, Lonnie Chisenhall? And what are they going to do without Lonnie Chisenhall? Yeah, Chisenhall's really turned into one of their better hitters over the last couple of years and even showed signs of developing some power in 2017. But he just can't stay healthy, and he had this calf problem last year. Uh, for now, in his roster spot, uh, Tyler Naquin has returned to Cleveland. He's going to pick up at bats uh, uh, versus right-handers anyway in a right-field platoon with uh, Brandon Gaier uh, as Bradley Zimmer patrols center field and Michael Brantley is back in left again. Uh, Naquin's no great shakes. Uh, perhaps his peripherals aren't god-awful and, he, and he's outplayed them at times. Uh, he could potentially provide fantasy owners in deep leagues who need outfield help a modest boost. He's he's two for five so far in the two games that he's played uh, since um, Chisenhall's injury. And uh, Raj Davis could probably get some additional playing time here, but but nothing real earth-shattering. I was reading a, a bit of analysis about Rajai Davis, and of course he's never been a terrific hitter, and he's 37 years old. But if he gets any kind of playing time at all, uh, Jock, he could really pick up some stolen bases. He's still doing that pretty well for a guy of his age. When he gets on base, he's a, he's a threat to go pretty much any time he's on, and he's a pretty good threat to make good on his steal attempts. Is Rajai Davis a... a perhaps worth looking at in mixed leagues where ordinarily you wouldn't touch him with a 10-foot pole? Yeah, he is. And, and for the exact reason you mentioned, uh, he can still run a little bit. Uh, he can still steal bases. Um, um, Raj Davis, if you're, if you're looking for stolen bases, it's not exactly a desperate play. I mean, you know, like you said, uh, this is a guy who can run. And uh, if he can get uh, eight to 10 stolen bases, maybe in the additional playing time that, uh, that Chisenhall's giving up, why not, right? Another outfielder in Kansas City this time, Alex Gordon, goes on to the DL with a tear in his hip labrum. It's going to keep him out at least two weeks. So these things usually last longer than that. I know the argument's going to be this is not a huge loss for Kansas City, given how badly Gordon has played for the past full year plus the start of this year. But Matt Dodge covered this in Playing Time Today at BaseballHQ.com. And Playing Time Tomorrow analyst Joe Pitleski broke it down as well in his column this past week. What are we going to see with the Royals and the uh, aftermath of Alex Gordon's injury? Yeah, Joe really did break things down nicely. I, I didn't realize that Gordon had been playing center field from the Royals. I assume he's doing it because he has a decent glove. And Kansas City's another rebuilding team that doesn't have a legitimate uh, offensive or defensive center field there, or at least a combination thereof. Um, yeah, despite making harder contact uh, in his first 23 at-bats, uh, Gordon was only four for 23. 
uh, before the injury. And, and he's come off two miserable years. Uh, I think he hit just 208 uh, last year, over 476 at bats. Uh, not sure why the Royals would want to give him that many. Um, he hit 220 the year before. Polo Orlando is the best defender uh, Kansas City has in his in his uh, absence. They're going to put him probably in center field. Uh, Abraham Almonte maybe gets him at bats, maybe Billy Burns. But, you know, again, none of these names uh, are, are exciting uh, anyone anymore. Uh, Billy Burns used to have a really good running game. It's dropped off a little bit. Maybe he can pick up a few stolen bases. But this is an example, like Texas, of another mediocre club that uh, doesn't have a lot of uh, of scintillating MLB depth to, to handle injuries, and they're not going to go out and pay for it. Uh, it seems to me that uh, ex-Royal Melky Cabrera would look a lot better offensively uh, in that outfield than uh, some of these names. Well, Jock, I think we agree Melky Cabrera would look better offensively than a lot of guys who are playing regularly all across baseball, not just on the Royals. But doesn't it strike you that the Royals are not going to be willing to pay whatever it's going to cost to roster Melky because this is a team that's clearly looking to rebuild. They've pretty much sold off anything that had any value in their in their uh, roster over the last off season or so. Uh, Melky Cabrera, I don't think he's going to end up in Kansas City. I don't know where he is going to end up, but I'd be really surprised if he ends up in uh, with the Royals. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And, and this is part and parcel of a problem that's uh, afflicting uh, fantasy owners across Major League Baseball. When a lot of these, these teams, particularly these rebuilding clubs, when they have injuries, there's not a lot to replace them with. And, uh, and whereas in, some, in most years, you'd be thinking, well, there's going to be some opportunity here. Yeah, someone's going to pick up the playing time, but I'm not sure you want them on your roster. Until the uh, call-ups start coming, and we'll talk about that as they do start coming a little later on in the year, there still has been plenty of call-ups. The BaseballHQ.com uh, prospect call-up report that they, they put out every day has been loaded with names, but most of them are the kind of the 5B, 5C, 6D kind of guys who are roster filler and not going to be super impactful, especially in shallower leagues. I think in an American League or National League only, you have to look at them. Every single guy who comes up could be better than what you've got at the end of your roster. But uh, speaking of call-ups, some in response to injuries. First in Anaheim, the Angels called up three starting pitching prospects, Jaime Berea, Nick Tropiano, and Andrew Heaney, and they're all going to make their first starts of the year in the next few days. What the heck's going on in Southern California there? Yeah, it was kind of the shift change, I think, in the uh, Angel rotation. Uh, But actually, uh, first off, uh, J.C. Ramirez, as as most uh, owners realize, is likely done for the year. He retore his UCL after putting it back together in the offseason with uh, plasma-rich protein injections. Uh, He's now very likely to undergo Tommy John surgery and and be lost. Uh, Matt Shoemaker is going to stay shut down for at least two weeks as he undergoes more tests to determine the nature of his strained forearm. This doesn't sound great, and particularly since this is a similar injury to the one he re- that required surgery last year and shelf Shoemaker for the, for the second half, of, for the entire second half, actually, of 2017. So for now, it looks like uh, the Angels will run a six-man rotation with uh, those three guys that we just mentioned, plus uh, Skaggs, Garrett Richards, and, of course, Shoei Otani. Yeah, um, that's right. Uh, I, I'm I'm not sure about um, um, Berea. Um, he was sent down after his start uh, last night from Texas, which actually went better than, well, as as well as you could expect. He got a win. He gave up one run in five innings. Uh, um, 
uh, Heaney and uh, and Tropiano are probably going to stay up. It'll it a lot will depend on how they perform. Heaney obviously hasn't been a paragon of health. He um, he pitched really well in the Cactus League. Came down with elbow inflammation at the end of March, uh, but he has made a, a successful rehab start in uh, High A. Tossed six innings of. Uh, six strikeout, one run ball. So the Angels at least have reason to be hopeful about um, his first start this week against the Royals. Uh, um, Likewise, Tropiano, he's uh, 18 months off of Tommy John surgery, had a good spring, uh, did well in his first AAA start. So those two look good to go for now. Um, In that sixth spot, I think you're looking at um, um, Parker Bridwell. He'll get another shot, and, uh, and, and Berea is likely the depth. Bridwell got pretty hammered by Oakland uh, earlier, didn't he? Uh, inning in two thirds, something like that, and sent sent back to AAA right away. Yeah, he did. Uh, uh, I, I I think the Angels uh, will will probably at least early on uh, rely on his experience. He's made another start in AAA. He did a lot better. Uh, did a lot better there. Um, my guess is that he'll be up next week uh, to take a start. Uh, Berea is going to get more more opportunities I think uh, I just don't think that the Angels really wanted to use to use him as the uh, the depth this early in the season uh, the injuries of course are, are necessitating this wouldn't surprise me uh, to see them uh, go out on the market to see what's available and finally the White Sox had a call up a familiar name to fantasy baseball players for the last few years Bruce Rondon the closer of the future in Detroit for about as long as the future lasts uh, he had a world of talent and a train wreck of a career with the Tigers, but he's still only 27 years old. That's kind of surprising. It seems like he's been around for 100 years. Is there any way Bruce Rondon could create fantasy value in Chicago? Yeah, honest, you know, he's he's had two games since he's come come back, and I haven't seen any of the films. But if you go by the numbers, he's still throwing 99 miles an hour, and he's throwing strikes, and he's working that fastball slider combination. Uh, uh, when when he is at his peak. This is what he's doing. He's got a. It's a classic closer combination. Uh, he has struck out five of the seven hitters he's faced, and he has yet to allow a base runner. The real key is obviously is can he do this over the long haul and can he stay healthy? But his arm is clearly intact, and like you said, he's only 27. Wouldn't surprise me at all to see him wind up eventually in a high leverage late inning role with the rebuilding White Sox. Uh, this is the kind of speculation I really like in deep leagues because of uh, the elite closer upside. With the caveat that he's never actually done it, unlike uh, Joaquin Soria, who's the current incumbent, and even Nate Jones has had some success in past years and a little bit this year as well. So, I mean, Rondon at best seems to slot in right now as the number three guy, doesn't he? Yeah, um, probably, and he hasn't even gotten that far. Obviously, he's got a lot to prove, but uh, don't forget, back in 2016, Rondon had a 2.97 ERA. He struck out 45 hitters in 36 innings. He had a really good year, and uh, obviously, there's there's always been controversy swirling around him. He's done some really dumb things, uh, um, and he's had some injuries, and his performance has been up and down, uh, but when you've got that kind of an arm and you can still throw that hard, uh, there's always going to be opportunity. If you can throw hard, you'll always have an opportunity. Boy, there's uh, been many a career built on uh, less, that's for sure. Uh, Jock, thanks a million for helping us out. And again, we'll be back with you next week. Sounds good, PD. 
Jock Thompson is a Baseball HQ writer and the director of news and analysis at the site. When we return, our Baseball HQ commentaries, the Minor League Minute, frequent flyer and pitcher matchups are all coming up on Baseball HQ Radio, but right now it's the time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say with confidence BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. You heard Nick and I talking about the Market Pulse, where former Major League Baseball General Manager Brad Coleman is doing a great job with a new format of this long-standing Baseball HQ column. He's looking at bull markets, bear markets, and pre-markets for players who are being dropped, added, and just coming up. It's a great resource for using in your fab bidding, regardless of the size of your league. In playing time tomorrow, American League Central analyst Joseph Pitleski, you heard Jock and I talking about that, looking at how long Brad Zimmer's leash will be at Yolmer Sanchez's suspect power in Chicago, about Jacoby Jones pressing Mikey Matuk for playing time in Detroit, Miguel Sano's awful contact problems in Minnesota, and the sad ongoing decline of Alex Gordon in Kansas City. And in a research piece, Eric Floramonte looks at whether flyball carry is a predictable batter skill. And those are just three articles among literally dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find all the time at BaseballHQ.com and why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have the frequent flyer and our pitcher matchups report for the weekend. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a look at Washington outfield prospect Juan Soto is Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. Now that the 2018 Minor League season is finally underway, we can start to get an idea of which of the top prospects are poised for breakout seasons. One player who has gotten off to a fast start is the Washington Nationals' Juan Soto. Soto opened a lot of eyes in 2017, slashing 351 with a 415 on base percentage and a 505 slugging percentage as an 18-year-old in rookie ball in low A, but a hand and leg injury limited him to just 111 at-bats. Soto has five above-average tools and displays natural hitting instincts, an all-field approach, and emerging raw power. At 6'1", 185 pounds, the left-handed hitting Soto is still projectable and should develop 25-plus home run potential down the road. He isn't a burner on the bases, but runs and throws well enough that he should be able to hold down right field once he reaches the majors. In his first seven games back at low A Hagerstown, Soto is hitting 400 with three home runs, two stolen bases, and six walks against five Ks. It would not be surprising to see Soto get an early promotion to high A and end the season at double A. It would also not be surprising to see Juan Soto start 2019 as a top 10 prospect. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, the BaseballHQ.com scouting team has reports and updates on the top prospects, organizational moves, daily call-up reports, and everything you need to keep tabs on the rising stars who so often make a difference in winning and losing our leagues. This week's prospect coverage includes that daily call-ups report looking at recent arrivals in the majors like San Diego outfielder Franchi Cordero, San Francisco right-hander Tyler Bede, Cincinnati right-hander Tanner Rainey, and many more prospects call-ups. Also, in the eyes have it, analyst Chris Blessing also takes a look at Juan Soto and some other Washington prospects live on the field. 
These days, knowing the prospects can mean the difference in your league, and Baseball HQ has the prospect tools you can use to make that difference. Now it's time for Frequent Flyer, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool, and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's Frequent Flyer is Angels right-handed starter Jaime Barilla, and here to tell you more, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. Although he's likely to be overshadowed at Anaheim by the likes of Shohei Otani, Mike Trout, and, well, Mickey Mouse, there's definitely a lot to like about 21-year-old Los Angeles Angels starting pitcher Jaime Berea. Sure, he hails from the same hometown as Mariano Rivera, Panama City, Panama, but at this point, that's probably where the comparison stopped to Mariano Rivera or even most top pitching prospects expected to debut in 2018. He may not have the big triple-digit fastball of Michael Kopech or even the aforementioned Shohei Otani, but what Jaime Berea does have is a polished repertoire, giving him the ability to pound the strike zone with four effective offerings, according to Baseball HQ's 2018 Minor League Baseball Analyst. Besides his low 90s fastball, Jaime Berea features an above-average curve and an impressive changeup. However, the Angels aren't hoping for a lot with Jaime Berea, assuming the other starters, namely Nick Tropiano and Andrew Heaney, are ready to help out soon, according to the April 12th edition of call-ups on BaseballHQ.com, suggesting that Jaime Berea might be optioned back to AAA soon. And that's exactly what happened. Right after his April 12th Major League debut, where he held the Texas Rangers to one run on one hit, a home run to Riot Rua, in five innings of work, he was sent back down. And that's exactly why Jaime Berea, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. Then again, Jaime Berea was named the Angels' 2017 Organizational Pitcher of the Year for a reason, and he did move quickly through three levels of the minors in 2017, all the way from the Class A Advanced California League to AAA Salt Lake, while exhibiting excellent command at every stop. Indeed, Jaime Berea's command ratio, or strikeouts-to-walk ratio, was an exceptional 377, or almost four strikeouts for every walk in 2017. When using command ratio as a leading indicator, our research at BaseballHQ.com correlates Jaime Berea's 377 command ratio to a projected 368 ERA at the major league level. In fact, our research can also be used to create a percentage play that assigns Jaime Berea an 85% probability of producing an ERA below 450 in 2018 and even a 56% probability of producing an ERA below 350 in 2018 in line with his career 347 ERA in the minors. Of course, anything can happen in 2018. Remember, he was just sent back down to AAA. Still, considering that Jaime Berea, at age 21, is the youngest Angels player to debut since Mike Trout on July 8, 2011, maybe Angels fans would agree that certainly he is worth a look, especially as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has our frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for pitcher matchups, and here with a scan of Julius Chassin in New York to face Noah Syndergaard and other weekend matchups is Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. 
Our starting pitcher matchup ratings for this weekend show three National League teams with both their Saturday and Sunday pitchers earning recommended start matchup ratings above one. The Washington Nationals pair of Max Scherzer and Steven Strasburg lead the way in D.C. Visiting Colorado Rockies hitters may have a tough time in their first East Coast series after a cross-country flight without the benefit of a travel day. Scherzer has a superlative matchup rating of 238 for his start against Jonathan Gray and his matchup rating of minus 002. Strasburg has a strong matchup rating of 165 opposite Tyler Anderson, who has a matchup rating of minus 025. Both of the other National League teams boasting pairs of pitchers with must-start matchup ratings this weekend are on the road. The white-hot Pittsburgh Pirates invade pitcher-friendly Marlins Park to take advantage of the decimated Miami Marlins, who thus far are living down to their preseason expectations. On Saturday, Bucks breakout candidate Jamison Tyone has a matchup rating of 199 for his start against fish-unknown Trevor Richards, whose matchup rating is minus 067. On Sunday, it's the Pirates' Ivan Nova putting up his matchup rating of 132 versus Jose Ureña, who has a must-sit matchup rating of minus 121. In Cincinnati, Cody Reed and Homer Bailey have their work cut out for them this Saturday and Sunday. Reed is saddled with a must-sit matchup rating of minus 139 against the St. Louis Cardinals' Miles Michaelis and his matchup rating of 107 on Saturday. On Sunday, the Cards' Carlos Martinez gets an identical matchup rating of 107 for his face-off with Bailey, who has a matchup rating of minus 048. Moving over to the positive side of the ledger, there's no shortage of potential marquee matchup men this weekend. In fact, there are three starting pitchers whose matchup ratings eclipse even Max Scherzer's 238. Since our marquee matchup man is from the National League, let's take a look at the top two matchup ratings from the American League first. On Saturday in Cleveland, Corey Kluber carries a stellar matchup rating of 275 into his hitter-friendly home park of Progressive Field to face the so far surprising Toronto Blue Jays. The Jays counter with reclamation project Jaime Garcia, who brings in a matchup rating of minus 046. On Sunday in Boston, the Baltimore Orioles and Dylan Bundy take on the team with the best record in the American League and its ever-dominant ace, Chris Sale. Bundy has been brilliant in his three starts, completing 20 innings with 5 walks and 25 strikeouts. For a command ratio of 5 strikeouts per walk and a base performance value or BPV of 161. Still, all that gets him is a matchup rating of minus 015 against Sale in Fenway Park. In his first three starts of 2018, Sale has gone 17 innings, walked only three, and struck out 23 for an incredible command ratio of 7.7 strikeouts per walk and a BPV of 185. Sale's matchup rating is 287. To quote from the BaseballHQ.com research article by Eric Floramonte describing our revamped pitcher matchup ratings, a matchup rating of 300 is in the 99.85th percentile. What's even more amazing, then, is that our marquee matchup man enters his home start against the Milwaukee Brewers with a matchup rating of, get this, 322. After 10 games, the New York Mets are tied with the Bo Sox for the best record in Major League Baseball. And our resurgent marquee matchup man, Noah Syndergaard, seems to be all the way back from a partially torn latissimus dorsi muscle that felled him on the final day of April last year. After turning in three innings at the close of the 2017 season, Syndergaard has made three starts thus far in 2018. 
over 16 innings. He's walked four and struck out 22 for a command ratio of 12.4 strikeouts per walk and a BPV of 195. Syndergaard's average fastball velocity is 97.3 miles per hour, and he's expected to take the hill despite fighting a blister in his most recent start. Our 2018 baseball forecaster gave Syndergaard an upside of the Cy Young Award and a downside of Chris Young durability. The unlucky Brew Crew starter to oppose our marquee matchup man is Jolice Chassin, who has a matchup rating of minus 1.50. So for the American League this weekend, count on Corey Kluber and Chris Sale. For the National League, rest your Rockies against the Nationals Max Scherzer and Steven Strasburg. Pick the Pirates Jamison Tyone and Yvonne Nova in Miami. Look for luck in the cards as St. Louis's Miles Michaelis and Carlos Martinez draw the Reds at Great American Ballpark in Cincinnati. And hope blisters don't block marquee matchup man Noah Syndergaard from another gem at home against Milwaukee. You can check our site to get updated matchup information every morning. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick has our weekend pitcher matchups all during the season here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we come back, part two of our feature expert interview with Derek Carty, coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. Jackson with four runs batted in. Sends a fly ball to center field and deep. That's going to be way back and that's going to be gone. Reggie Jackson is hitting his third home run of the game. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Derek Carty from ESPN and Roto Grinders. And of course, also, he's the developer of The Bat, fantasy baseball projection system. Derek Carty, welcome back for part two. Thanks a lot. Happy to be back. You're one of a very few fantasy analysts who has also attended Major League Baseball's scout school. Why did you go through that program? So when I started doing fantasy, you know, I, I read Moneyball first, and, and I was super into the, you know, the numbers side and the, the math and the analytics. Um, but as you kind of develop, you realize that, that there are things that those, you know, that the numbers can't tell you. And so I wanted to see the other side of the game, basically. I wanted to learn, um, you know, how, how people who evaluate players with their eyes are doing it and how, you know, how mechanics and things like that can, can shift your impressions of a player. And uh, what are the what are the biggest things that you learned about that scouting side of the equation? Just that there are there's there's a whole other way of, of looking at players, and and I still do very much, um, you know, lean towards the numbers side, um, especially because you know you go to scout school and you're not automatically you know the world you know premier scout. You know there there's still you know I, my skills are still much stronger in terms of the numbers than the scouting. But, but the scouting can help sometimes. Like It can help you identify maybe why, why you're seeing something in the numbers. So when you're looking at these players, uh, can you do it on television? Uh, or how does looking at it on TV, considering you have multiple angles and replays and slow motion and stuff, versus being in the park watching them with live eyes? Yeah, I mean, being in the park um, is, is definitely easier. You can get the right angle. You can move around. You know, in scout school, we move around all the time, and and look at players from the exact right angles that we want. Um, but you can see a little bit um, on TV sometimes. Um, and, and two now, a lot, of, uh, a lot of what we see on TV is actually, you know, quantifiable. We have, you know, pitch FX and stat cast now that, 
it helps kind of quantify some of these, you know, scouting things that just a few years ago, you know, we, we weren't able to quantify. When you were uh, just learning these, these scouting uh, things that people are looking for, mechanics and so forth, do you remember any player in particular that you saw at a, at a young age, a real prospect age, and you thought to yourself, based on how this guy looks, I think he's going to be really good? And he was. Yeah, so, so the very first player they had a scout was Billy Hamilton. It was during Instructional League back in '09, I think. Um, and they had us look at Billy Hamilton. And, and they had just told us how to use a stopwatch to, to time how fast the player is. And we're all sitting there. Billy Hamilton hits the ball, and he runs the first base, and we all do our stopwatches. And when he gets there, we look at our watches, and we're like, can that be right? Like, did we do it right? Because, you know, you have to time it exactly right, exactly when they hit the ball, exactly when they hit first base. And if you don't time it right, you know, you can get, you know, your time is off. And we're all brand new to it, so we don't necessarily know if we're doing it right. We're all looking at these times. And we're like, is this guy really this fast? And, and obviously, it's Billy Hamilton. He really is that fast. So we were, we were all very impressed. Um, and, uh, and Hamilton was a guy, you know, you look at, you look at him, He's not going to have power, but he's super fast, kind of slaps the ball around, and we're like, oh, I can see this guy being, you know, being a capable major leaguer, and, and he's been exactly kind of what you thought he'd be. It, one of the knocks on Billy Hamilton, though, is that he's never really figured out how to put the ball in play on the ground. Uh, sl- like you said, slapping it around. He, he hits too many fly balls, don't you think, in his major league career that aren't going anywhere. They're just cans of corn, and that if he could figure out a way to bunt more, uh, to hit it the opposite way on the ground, these kind of things, that he might uh, improve his chances of being on base and take advantage of his speed? Absolutely. I mean, you know, a guy like him, he's, he's not hitting home runs. He's you know, you're not paying. You're not paying him to to go out there and try to hit the ball over the outfielder's head. He he should be using his speed to get on base for. In general, what are you looking for in a prospect hitter? I guess it depends, but I mean, especially in today's game, you're you're looking for power. You're looking for you're looking for a guy with power, and you're looking for a guy that that can generate that power without without having holes in his swing, without being you know exploitable or predictable. When you say holes in the swing, what does that mean? Are, are there ways to, to exploit the player? Like, is his swing such a way that, that a pitcher can, you know, they can pitch him inside because he can't cover that part of the plate? Or, you know, they can, you know, will he chase the pitch outside, you know, more than he should? And that kind of thing. On the pitching side, what are you looking for there? Um, you know, a, a, it's, it's great because a lot of the pitching stuff now we can quantify. I mean, more than anything else on the pitching side, we're looking for we're looking for a guy with good pitches. You know, we're looking for, you know, a fastball that is fast and that has a lot of spin and that has a lot of, you know, rising movement. Uh, you know, we're looking for for a curveball that, you know, well curveballs actually can do a lot of different things with. But the kind of curveballs that, that tend to do the best are the ones that, that are hard, that are hidden well inside the fastball, that are tunneled well, um, that a pitcher can keep low in the zone. And so you're just kinda of looking for you know, for that type of stuff. You're looking at each pitch individually, um, and ideally you're doing it with, with clean mechanics. What constitutes clean mechanics? Oh, that is, that is just a Pandora's box right there. there. There's a lot of things, and there's a lot of, uh, a lot of honestly, conflicting, you know, views on what, what constitutes clean mechanics, what's okay, you know, what you want a pitcher to be doing, what you don't want a pitcher to be doing. There's a, you know, there's a lot of old-school scouts, and you hear broadcasts on TV talk about how, how you want a pitcher to have downhill plane. But then you listen to, you know, a guy like 
uh, Doug Thorburn who works with, with Tom House, and he says, no, you don't want downward plane or downhill plane. Like, that's that's the worst thing you can do. Um, and so it's just, it's uh, there, there's no real one right answer when it comes to what constitutes clean, clean mechanics. I mean, there's certain things that, that you kind of don't want a guy to do. Like, you know, you hear, hear the scouts talk about you don't want, you know, the inverted W on the, on the elbow because it places too much stress on it. But then you see a guy like Chris Bale, he's, you know, doing that for years, and he's fine. So, like, there, there's no one right answer. Yeah, Chris Sale's kind of the poster boy for uh, everything you ever heard about mechanics being inapplicable. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's always going to be exceptions, and every, every pitcher's, you know, physiology is different. And so you kind of you do the best you can with it. Um, but, you know, coming up through, through the minors, you know, ideally you want a guy who looks the right way, but that's not to say that a guy who doesn't look the right way can't be effective also. It's just you kind of, I guess, need to play the probabilities. I don't know if you're in a position to know uh, very much about this, but has Major League uh, player development theory advanced to the point where they're being a little less dogmatic about making players change their mechanics at the lower levels of the minors? A guy who's coming in throwing, you know, 94, 95 miles an hour, but he has some kind of mechanical thing that somebody doesn't like, and so they say, start doing it this way, and he becomes less effective. And I've heard stories of that over the years. You know, a hitter who's capable of hitting in a funky style, they say, no, no, you'd hit better if you did it more normally or more uh, more in a uh, orthodox way, and it doesn't, uh, sometimes, a lot of times, doesn't work out that way. Are they getting better at letting letting boys be boys i'm not sure i don't have uh, a ton of contacts like at the lower level player development side um you know i know in scout school they would kind of say how how you know a player's mechanics are are bad up until up until the point that they don't work for them <laughs> which is you know kind of a cop-out but like you know i think every organization has their own has their own philosophy I think so too, and I think the uh, the whole idea of mechanics is fairly amusing, just because of the fact that you said nobody seems to agree on what they are. So, you know, one organization might say we don't like this guy's mechanics, and the next organization might say oh, we love this guy's mechanics, and therefore, I wonder when it comes time to assess players from a fantasy perspective, what are the most common errors that fantasy owners make when they're looking at prospects or rookies or young players? I think the most common mistakes that fantasy players make is that they see the tools and they, they assume that that's, that's who the player is right now. They see him with, you know, monster power or, or blazing speed or, you know, a really fast fastball, and they say, oh, this guy's going to be this good because of this. And there's so much more to it than just, just those, you know, exciting tools. You know, a hitter needs to have plate discipline. You know, a pitcher, not just about velocity, there are so many other components of pitching. And I, and I think that gets lost on some people. They see the hype, they see what the player can be, and, and they don't realize what he is right now is, is different from that. Before we leave this topic, Derek, I have to ask, uh, based on what you've seen, and I'm sure you've seen some, uh, what do you think of Shohei Otani's amazing start so far this year as a pitcher and as a hitter, and how it has conformed with what you were expecting before the season began? I uh, I was I was big on the Otani hype wagon in the off season. I was tweeting about him a lot. Um, I I mean he's been he's been what I expected. Like I expected him to be really really good. You know I had I had a scout you know uh, you know who who saw him you know tell me that that he he's an eighty grade pitcher and with an eighty grade power. Like 
you know, he's throwing 100 miles an hour, and then he's hitting, you know, hitting a ball over the over the, the ballpark school scoreboard in the same game. Or like, it's just, it's it's crazy how good this guy, you know, was expected to be, and and he's pretty much doing it. Like, and you look at the numbers too. For for a couple of years, you know, I'd, I'd run my bat, you know, my projection system to bat, and every time I'd finish running, like it would spit out, you know, the top the top projected players, and and the top five pitchers. Otani was always in the top five pitchers for 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 a couple of years because he was just his Japanese numbers were just so good, and then and then last year, um, he had like an ankle injury. He didn't pitch very much. He pitched only like five games. Came back midway through the year to start pitching. Um, and his walk rate was like through the roof, and his projection fell a little bit. Um, but but if you were to exclude those games, you say, okay, well he was pitching hurt. Like maybe maybe this isn't quite who he is. You know, he projected as as one of the best pitchers in the entire world. And so you know, I really wouldn't be surprised if he continues just absolutely dominating. And what about on the hitting side? Would you expect him to keep showing this prodigious power? And does that mean that necessarily he's not going to have a terrific batting average? Yeah, I was a little more pessimistic on the hitting side. I mean, he's still, like, by pitcher standards, like, so, so great of a hitter. Like, the the difference between him and, like, the next best hitting pitcher in baseball is, like, the gap between Mike Trout and Jeff Mathis. Like, it's just, it's enormous. Um, But, uh, you know, I expect the power, the power's there. The raw power's there. We're seeing it in games. You do expect the batting average to, to be low because he does strike out a good amount, um, but it's still very impressive what he's doing. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Derek Carty from ESPN and Roto Grinders. And uh, Derek, you have developed a projection tool called the Bat. It has come up a couple of times in our talk today. Why did you think at the time you started developing it that there was room for yet another projection engine in the fantasy baseball market? Uh, well, I started developing it just just kind of for fun to to kind of um, work on my my statistical chops, and this was I think eight or nine years ago now, before DFS was even a thing. Um, so I was just kind of developing developing it myself without any real expectations, and then daily came along, and I'm like, oh, I kind of have this system that I could tailor for daily, where there really isn't, you know, there really wasn't any projection systems for daily in the market, and certainly no good one. Um, and so I was like, okay. I'm coming from this this sabermetric background where I really know how to how to analyze players and, and and have this sabermetric approach that that most people who are playing daily don't have. They're either you know casual fans or they're coming over from the poker side or like people don't have the same approach that I was taking at the time. And so I was like, okay, I can I can build this product that I think is going to be different and better than than whatever else is out there. And obviously, there have been a lot more you know enter the market over the past few years. You know the the the, the the intelligence level and the the quality of the tools and things that are out there has definitely gone up over the past couple of years. But I still do think the bat is the best out there, and uh, and yeah. So I mean, that's kind of how how I went about it. You said the bat is different from the other projection system. How so? Part of it, I think, is is because of the sabermetric approach that I take. You know, from I, and you never know exactly what other systems are doing. Well, like you can look at them and you can kind of see you know, what you think's going on. And, you know, a lot of systems, they don't seem to be taking that sabermetric approach. They're not using uh, multiple years. You know, a lot of people will only use, you know, one year, where they won't be, you know, regressing to the mean or, or things like that. And then 
And then the bat takes into account so many factors that other people and other systems don't seem to be taking into account. You know, you know, we talked about the umpires and, and pitch framing and, and weather. I mean, the bat takes into account all sorts of weather factors, not just, you know, temperature and wind, but it takes into account humidity and air pressure and, and all kinds of things, you know, these little nuanced things that, you know, maybe aren't huge, but when you add them all up, they, they convey a pretty significant edge. And I think that's, that's one of the things that really sets the bat apart. I presume being a numbers guy, you've uh, kept track of how well your projections have been performing. How well have your projections been performing since you launched the bat? I mean, they've been, they've been performing well. I mean, you, you know, you read what, what subscribers are saying, and people are very happy with it. People are winning. I'm winning. You know, we tested them against, uh, against Vegas lines the past couple of years, and they've, they've been more, uh, more accurate than the Vegas lines. And so, you know, I think that, that speaks a lot to the quality. And when a fantasy customer is looking at projections, when you as a, as a projections provider are looking at projection systems, especially uh, in this day and age when there's so many competitors in the field, how do you measure success in a, in a numerical way, or do you even bother trying? It's tough because everyone kind of has their own definition of success. Um, you can try to measure it in terms of, you know, whether you're winning in DFS, and that's important, but... But, uh, you know, a projection system can be really great. Um, but if you're not following a sound bankroll management strategy, uh, you can be losing anyway. Or, or you can be, you know, picking certain players for your lineup and, you know, getting unlucky a little bit. Like some of your players maybe, maybe aren't doing well, even if a lot of other players that the system likes is doing well. So it's just, it's tough. It's about lineup construction. It's about bankroll management. And so judging it based on DFS results, you know, especially in, in a short-term sense, uh, can be a little bit misleading. What you really want is you want long-term results. You want long-term results either in DFS or you want the projections to be more accurate than other projections and more accurate than something like Vegas that other people are using. Um, but more than anything else, you want a strong process because, you know, variance can happen, especially in daily fantasy. But if you're using a very strong process over the long term, you should expect strong results. When I started reading about the bat, Derek, the one thing that struck me was how how clearly the product pays attention to both sides of the DFS situation, namely projecting the player's performance, but on top of that, figuring out how to optimize the lineup. And I know there are other products that also uh, purport to do that, but it seems like the optimizer portion of it is really key because even if everybody, as you said, has the right projections, even if everybody's projections are perfectly accurate, there's still the question of how are you going to um, allot your fixed $50,000 of salary or whatever it is on the website that you prefer and divide it up amongst these various players to get the most bang for your buck. And it doesn't always mean you get Mike Trout and, and Bryce Harper and fill in around the edges. Maybe that's a good strategy. Maybe it's not a good strategy, but I think that's a key part of it that uh, really, if you've, if you've cracked that, you've really done something terrific for DFS players. Yeah, and that's exactly what I was kind of trying to get at, where, like, you know, everyone builds their lineups differently, and you may have great projections, but if you're building your lineup suboptimally, you might have suboptimal results. Um, and so, so, you know, I do, I do really like using a lineup optimizer. Um, I don't always adhere to it 100%. You know, I'll, I'll imbue my own, you know, scouting thoughts or, you know, maybe I think a guy's playing hurt. So, 
that's something you know a system maybe can't can't account for. Uh, so there is you know a subjective element to it as well. But I think using an optimizer as a starting point is a great way to kind of identify where the value is, which guys are really strong bangs for your buck plays. I know you've uh, designed the bat primarily as a DFS tool. How is it beneficial to somebody who prefers to play season long but likes the idea of a uh, of a really solid projections engine? Yeah, so so the bat is actually, <clears throat> I designed it initially for DFS, and it was in the DFS community for years, but it's actually over at Fangrass now. The season-long version of the bat is on all the Fangrass pages, so... So it can be used for both right now. And then kind of how we talked about earlier in the show where, you know, it can kind of help you identify guys that maybe you weren't thinking about in your season-long league. You know, guys that, you know, are projecting very well on a daily basis that that maybe you should be thinking about acquiring in, in your yearly leagues. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Derek Carty from ESPN and Roto Grinders, and the founder and producer of The Bat, the projection system. We've just been talking about that, and... Since you are the expert on the bat, I'll challenge you to come up with some boons and banes using your system if you like. Uh, these are players that you think are going to be undervalued and overvalued for the rest of this season. Uh, let's start with your boons. These are guys you think should interest our listeners. We'll start in the American League with a hitter. Who's a boon that you think could be uh, a pleasant surprise in value? It's not to pick just one guy that you really like, but like I think Giancarlo Stanton and J.D. Martinez are both both phenomenal players, and we're both going underdrafted in drafts. Both off to, you know, not the best start, but they're both so good. I think because they don't have speed, people tend to to undervalue them a little bit. But they're such good hitters, and they have so much power, and they're in such good position, you know, in the AL East and strong lineups in Yankee Stadium and Fenway Park. And especially once the weather starts warming up, I think they're both going to have have really strong seasons. So maybe now's the time to make an offer on Giancarlo Stanton for the impatient owner in your league who looks at the uh, the 120 batting average or whatever it is and says, this guy's a bum, I'm getting rid of him. Uh, over in the National League, anybody uh, fit that bill? Um, the guy that I really like is Michael Conforto, another guy that doesn't have a ton of speed but has a lot of power. And uh, I think just kind of the perception of him over the years hasn't matched the talent because of how the Mets have handled him. You know, they've sent him down to the minors a couple times, you know, he struggled and, you know, for, for, you know, some stretches when he was in the majors. But you look at what he's done over the course of the entirety of, of you know, his career and, and how he projects. And, you know, Michael Conforto is a top 25 hitter in baseball. Not necessarily for fantasy purposes because he plays on the mess, he plays in the bad park, doesn't have speed. But just in terms of pure hitting, this guy can hit. And so he just seems undervalued for, for how good of a hitter he is. Over to the mound we go, back to the American League. Who's a pitcher you think uh, people don't recognize his true value? I mentioned him earlier. I love Garrett Richards. Garrett Richards has it's always been a matter of health for him, and I think people are, are wary of him, and for, for, for good reason. You know, he, he hasn't been healthy, but uh, he's looked really good this year. When he is healthy, he has some of the best stuff in baseball, some of the best numbers. You know, he's in a really great environment with a great supporting offense with the Angels, a great defense behind him, especially with the additions of of Cozart and Kinsler to Simmons this year. Um, And, and, you know, he pitches in Angel Stadium. Like, he's just, I think Garrett Richards is phenomenal. Another undervalued and underappreciated factor is team defense. I forgot to mention that earlier, but it's a really important point. Uh, How about over in the National League? Who's a boon pitcher for you? I love Jose Quintana. 
I think he's kind of at that ace level without people realizing he's at that ace level. He pitched for the White Sox for so long, and there's such bad condition in the American League, in a hitter's park, in a division with, with four really strong hitter's parks, uh, with bad defenses, with bad framing, with you know bad offensive support. Like everything, everything was working against Quintana for years. Now he's in the National League. He's with the Cubs. Great offensive support. Phenomenal defense. Um, and, uh, and he's coming off, you know, one of the best years of his career. So, like, I'm a big Quintana fan. Derek Cardi's Boons in the American League hitters, Giancarlo Stanton of the Yankees, J.D. Martinez of Boston. In the National League, New York Mets, Michael Conforto. The pitchers, Garrett Richards of the Angels, Jose Quintana of the Chicago Cubs. Boy, that's a good team. <laughs> nice to have good pitchers on good teams. Uh, let's move over to the Baines now, Derek. These are guys about whom you think listeners should be cautious because they might be overvalued. Starting in the American League, who's a hitter? I'm going to go with Alex Brightman just because he was getting so overdrafted this year. And, and I think he's one of those guys where we kind of talked about earlier where he's this young guy where he was a, a stud prospect. He has tons of upside, um, and he could be a star. But I think people are paying for him to be a star, and he's not quite there yet. You know, he had a, a great second half of the year last year, but studies have kind of shown the second half isn't necessarily any more predictive than the first half. And, and his overall numbers last year really weren't anything special. He had like a 340 Wova, you know, 20 home runs. You know, he's good. He's definitely good. But, you know, he was being drafted this, you know, in leagues this year, I think in like the second or the third round. And, and he's one of those guys where if you're going to pay for him there, he has to be a star. And he hasn't shown that he's one yet. You know, the projections don't have him to be one. How about in the National League? Who's a Bane hitter for you? Uh, Jake Lamb. I've I've always thought Jake Lamb is a little bit overrated to begin with, um, but I'm a big uh, I'm a big believer in the in the humidor. Mm. You know, I put out a, a big Twitter thread over the off season, kind of laying out all the evidence, and and it hasn't it hasn't played like a pitcher's park quite yet, <laughs> as we'd expect it to. But but all the science and all the math, you know, you look at what happened in Coors Field, and Coors Field got significantly less hitter friendly when they added a humidor. You look at what Dr. Alan Nathan is saying uh, when he ran his numbers, and, and he said, you know, the, the home run drop-off in Chase should be even bigger than it was in Coors based on, based on his physics models. And so, so we expect this to be a pitcher's park. And, uh, and Jake Lamb is a guy that I think was overrated to begin with that um, uh, Andrew Perpetua at Fangraphs showed might have the biggest decline of any Diamondbacks hitter. And so Lamb's a guy that I'm just uh, I'm very down on this year. Yeah, I don't see how people don't don't figure this in more than they do. You take the ball and basically dunk it in water for a couple of hours before the game. You know, it might be a little soggier than it was last year. Uh, to me, to me, this seems like fairly obvious and should have affected a lot of Arizona hitters more than it seems to have. Uh, over to the pitching mound once again, and uh, who's an American League Bane pitcher for you? Uh, Garrett Cole, just because like he's he's being drafted along the same lines as. Or I guess he was being drafted and probably still still valued after a couple of good starts. You know, as like a, I don't know what was he like a top fifteen pitcher in drafts or something. And he's just he's just not that good. Like you look at his numbers last year in the National League with the Pirates, and he doesn't strike a ton of guys out. His peripherals are are good, but they're not ace level. And now you put him in the American League. Like I just I can't see Garrett Cole being you know, being the pitcher that everyone thinks he is. Like, I think Garrett Cole is, is the fourth-best pitcher on the Astros. I think Verlander, I think McCullers, and I think Morton are both, are all, you know, all three are better pitchers than, than Cole, and Cole's being drafted, I think, ahead of any of them. 
And how about in the National League, another a Bane pitcher? Um, it's going to sound kind of counterintuitive, but, but Zach Greinke. Um, even, even with the humidor, I think Greinke has always been overrated, and I think people are, are overdrafting him, you know, still. Uh, you know, and I do expect him to get a little bit better with the humidor. He did have a great bounce-back season last year. But, uh, you know, two seasons ago, he was awful, and that's going to factor into a projection a little bit. And he's another guy who just doesn't strike out a lot of pitch, uh, a lot of hitters, and, and he gets drafted along with the same kinds of guys who do, and I just I just never think he's, he's worth it because he doesn't do the same things that other aces do. Derek Cardi's Baines, Alex Bregman of Houston, Jake Lamb of Arizona, Garrett Cole of Houston, and Zach Greinke of Arizona. Geez, Derek, this has been great. Uh, tell us where listeners can keep up with Derek Cardi. Yeah, you can. Uh, I have a daily article at ESPN. Um, I'm on Roto Grinders uh, all the time. My my projection system, the bat, is at Roto Grinders for daily. It's at Fangrass for season long. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter at Derek Hardy. All right, Derek. Thanks very much for doing this. Uh, it's your first time. It was terrific to talk to you, and I hope to do it again during the season. Yeah, me too. Thanks a lot. Derek Carty works for ESPN and Roto Grinders, and he's the developer of the Bat Fantasy Projection System. When we return, our regular weekly talk with Todd Zola and Master Notes coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. Gibson swings and a fly ball to deep right field. This is going to be a home run. Unbelievable! A home run for Gibson. And the Dodgers have won the game 5-4. to four. I don't believe what I just saw. I don't believe what I just saw. Is this really happening, Bill? It is happening, and they've got to help him home. The third-place coach, uh, Joe Malfitano, had to give him a little push, and all the Dodgers are around home plate. I don't believe what I just saw. One of the most remarkable finishes to any World Series game. A one-handed home run by Kurt Gibson, and the Dodgers have won it 5-4. to four. I am stunned, Bill. I have seen a lot of dramatic finishes in a lot of sports, but this one might top almost every other one. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular weekly talk with Todd. And I'm happy to once again say, Todd Zola, welcome back to the show. Yeah, it seems like just a week ago we were doing this, huh? Yes, uh, it does seem like that, and it's a good thing, too. Uh, I'd like to talk to you about your recent Rotowire column, The Z-Files, about early season approaches and how fantasy owners should respond to what's going on out there. This is a subject that a lot of fantasy experts are talking about, and you opened by saying, who's hot, who's not, who cares? What do you mean by that? Well, other than being an homage to our friend Steve Moyer, who you know recently passed away, um, it's 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 a it's just sort of all about streaks and about right now. You, I think maybe we talked last week a little about Christian Villanueva and Matt Davidson and how to approach some of these hot players. Do you pick them up? Do you not pick them up? That sort of thing. So original, what 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 Steve originally was talking about, it was kind of a a, a dig because that was the most popular column at the time. It was just everybody. That's all everybody talked about. Uh, you know, this is before the sabermetric era took over and kind of showed us that streaks are, I guess the best way to say is they're, they're real, but they're not predictive. 
we just don't know when a streak's going to end. And everybody would write their pieces, and you know, this guy's hot, this guy's not, and he was like, who cares? It's not, it's not helping me. You're not, you know, you're not telling me anything to help me manage my team. So I agreed with him, and uh, this was, this was sort of a, uh, what it was was an, an homage to Steve, and also just a segue into what I wanted to say the rest of the column. You know, a few years ago at BaseballHQ.com, I did a couple of studies, one of uh, batting average over time and one of uh, uh, whether home runs come in bunches. And the answer is uh, players ebb and flow, especially over short runs, and uh, everything evens out in a very long run. I think uh, I used Derek Jeter's batting average as an example. And in any 15-game run, he could hit 600, he could hit 100, but over his career, he settled in pretty stable at 305 or so. And that's exactly what we'd expect. And then in the home run situation, um, I picked out some home run hitters who were uh, supposedly notorious for being streaky, bunchy hitters, and they weren't. You know, there was no predictive value from what you did in this 10-game slice. In the next 10-game slice, whether it was you're going to bounce back from a uh, no-home run slice to a five-home run slice or vice versa, it just didn't matter. There was no streakiness in it, and I and I still believe that. But then you said in your column, maybe we should start caring a little bit about hot and not, at least a little bit. Uh, what's changed? What's changed, and I don't know, I remember when you did the the study, and I think, well, what's changed, to answer your question, what's changed is uh, context, and back when Steve wrote those words, and, and it, was, it was like late 1990s, early 2000s, the predominant format was still deep AL and NL only, some of which were still old school rules and didn't even have reserve lists yet. You had to have a, a natural opening in order to replace a player. So you're kind of forced to be uh, patient, you know, you know, Ron Chandler's, uh, you know, exercise excruciating patience, sort of a something that, that may or may not go down on his on, you know, part up part of his uh, legacy. I think it will. There's, you know, several expressions like that: skills, not roles, etc. Exercise excruciating patience. Well, with with ten and twelve team mixed leagues and reserve lists and DL lists and the whatnot, I don't know that we can exercise this excruciating patience anymore. I think. You at least have to consider some of these hot and cold players. We don't know if you're going to land on Whit Merrifield or you're going to land on Chris Taylor, the guys from last year. But I think the players, uh, the, the the fantasy players who are willing to churn, who are willing to take that risk, sometimes you know, I know sometimes they. I've done a little bit of looking at the NFBC. They're the ones that do better, and it's it's a lot of it because you cut bait really quickly and the free agent pool is plush enough that you can cover up for your mistake but i you know to me it's it's a fine line between being aggressive and being reckless and you know to me being reckless is picking up a guy cuz he got three homers chasing the stats but being aggressive is, you know if if you now you add in the game theory that well you know what if he didn't work out i can cut him and i can still you know nick markakis will always be there for me I'm not sure that's reckless. I mean, it's not fantasy baseball evaluation using, you know, the metrics that we like to use, but it's part of the game theory that can help you le- lead to success. The fact that there is someone there if if it was, if you were wrong and if you were right, and I'm not even sure it's wrong or right. If you go, if you got lucky, then uh, the the advantage that you get over replacing that last player in your team is huge. So it kind of it's I mean it's almost a DFS mentality where when you try to win a tournament you're 
you may not be taking the player. You, you know, you look for advantages in in ownership and, and 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 contrarian picks and things like that. It's sort of along those lines, and I think you have to play some of the shallower formats. Which you know, admittedly, the audience that we the, we do we deal with, it may not be as predominant uh, among the audience we play with, but it's it's certainly the majority of people that play fantasy, believe it or not, play in these ten and twelve team leagues. When I read uh, your column, Todd, the first thing that popped into my mind was, of course, uh, there's an advantage in a guy who's hot in the in the sense that it may earn him some playing time that wasn't expected when you went through the draft or auction, and that that really does have a bearing mm-hmm. if a guy started off hot and is playing well, especially if the, the other person in his position has started off not so hot or not playing well, that maybe there may be a playing time effect, and that's a real thing. That's not something Absolutely. that's streaky. That's something that really does happen. And the other... Uh, the the issue that arises from that that came in uh, the latter part of your column is that in bullpen management the what the managers say mm-hmm. and what the managers do is often quite different and one way to assess what they're actually thinking is to look at what they're actually doing yeah this is it's a perfect timing for this question you know the example I'll use in a minute is a, is a great example of this um, you know basically they you know the Mets for instance came out and said that they were not going to necessarily use Jairus Familia every single time to close, that they were going to play a little bit of matchup game. Now, there's a new manager in New York, uh, in, in Queens, so you know you, you at least have to listen to what he's saying. But then, you know, managers, they want, a, they want one guy. They want one. It, it's easier. There's, they, you know, I don't want to say there's a built-in excuse when things fail, but, but it's right. so much easier on their life if they have a set bullpen and... You know, all managers will eventually trend towards that. So if I was able to get Familia at a discount coming into the season because people thought, well, he's not going to get, you know, 35 saves, he may get 30, I wanted to jump on that because I just, uh, my mind, they you hear this all the time and it just never comes to fruition. And sure enough, Familia got, the you know, all of the early season saves. It's still early, we don't know. But, you know, what the draft is done, but... Perhaps you can see who has familiar in your league, see what else they have for closers, and if they still, you know, you know, give, you know, if, you, if you're trying to trade for a closer, and you know, maybe you don't, they've got a couple other good ones. You say, well, you know, maybe you're willing to give a familiar because, you know, as the manager said, he's probably not going to get all the saves. You know, sort of a negotiating ploy along those lines. So that's one thing. And the other team that 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 came out was with Joaquin Soria and Nate Jones with the White Sox. Now, they're probably not going to get a ton of of saves now you know everybody will get saves but teams with poor records and teams with poor starting pitching trend towards the the lower end of the save scale so they came out and said that they were going to split between Joaquim Soria and Nate Jones I was just you know you don't sign Joaquim Soria if you're not going to have him close for you and try to trade him or whatever so I was trying to get Soria at a bunch of uh in a bunch of places at a discount and up until last night, he had the only two save opportunities for the White Sox. Now, here's, you know, part of the, the column was saying you got to do your due diligence. you got to do a little bit of legwork. Jones got a save last night, and someone will say, well, look, they're splitting the saves. But here's the deal. Chicago was losing in the eighth, and Jones was warming up. He was going to pitch the ninth anyway when they were losing, but they, the White Sox scored runs in the bottom of the ninth, uh, bottom of the eighth, took the lead, and because he was hot, uh, you know, all warmed up, and, and et cetera, 
uh, Jones pitched the ninth and got the save. So it's a little early to say, oh, you, you see, he's right. They're splitting saves. It was very a situational thing there where, you know, some teams, sure, may have said, okay, you know, we're going to warm up Soria and have him pitch the ninth. So there was a little something to it. Although, you know, also, you know, you got your, your reliever hot. A lot of teams like to use him. They don't like to waste that. So I think you have to read a little bit into Jones and saves and say, you know, and say Soria is still the guy. But this may happen a few more times throughout the course of the season, and and you know, but I don't think it's a 50-50 split. I think it's just a sort of circumstantial sort of thing. Right. I thought the same thing when I looked at that box score that it looked like Jones was being brought in in a relatively high leverage situation, uh, and then it changed from that into a an actual save situation. And they re- the reason they put him in is because they don't want to waste the warm up. I think they're getting smarter about that, mm-hmm. uh, having guys stand up and start throwing, and then sit down, and then stand back up and start throwing. I mean, they're they're all pitches, and they all take their toll on the arm. Uh, what do you make of the situation in Los Angeles? The uh, Angels have uh, what looks like a 14-headed monster out there that has the potential to save games and uh, no, it's not at all clear what Mike Sosha's plans are. How do you play that? Yeah, this is these sort of questions, and we've talked in off-air, these are sort of my, my least favorite because, you know, your guess is as good as mine. But people want my okay. guess, so I guess I need to give it to them. Now, that, you know, you could, you could also ask about Milwaukee and a few other situations. It looks to me, anyway, that it looks like Kenyon Middleton is beginning to separate from the pack out there. And at least in the short term, if you're looking at Middleton or Barnes or or Albers or, or some of the you know other teams like this that are we're not exactly sure, it looks like Middleton separating. Now, I still think Blake Parker's a good pitcher. I don't think he forgot how to pitch. I think he had a couple poor outings early, a couple in the save opportunities. So therefore, people are going to now say that he can't handle the pressure. Yada yada yada. He's probably going to go on to have a really good rest of the season as a setup guy. Uh, you, know, the, you know, the same maybe with, with, with Jacob Barnes in Milwaukee. He's better than he's showing, and it just happened to be he tripped up early, and they're going to do what we expected them to do, K and inning, and, you know, et cetera, the rest of the season. Um, it sounds like Corey Knable will be back, and he's their guy, so it's less of an issue. Um, you know, maybe San Francisco with Hunter Strickland. Um, I think I'd probably prefer Strickland to Middleton just because this is more of a spidey sense. I just don't think Melanson's going to be right. I don't remember if I was talking to you or, or just talking to someone in general, but I kind of think Melanson may turn into the next, may turn into a Houston Street type of guy, where when he pitches, when you know he's a closer, so he's going to close when he's healthy, but he's just not going to be healthy that much, and you know it's, it's going to be trying to recapture the old days, and he's just not going to be able to do it. It's an interesting situation that often presents an opportunity as we discussed before that maybe Blake Parker if he's being waived in your league especially in shallower leagues where everybody's always looking for what's going right now as you mentioned earlier if Blake Parker falls into the into the pool you know Kenyon Middleton is doing well now but you know he blows two saves in a week all of a sudden he's fourth man on the totem pole out there so uh, and Blake Parker you know baseball HQ says buy the skills not the role and uh, maybe that's an opportunity there uh, mm-hmm. you also recommended in your column something to do with left-handed pitchers versus left-handed hitters and I thought this was a really interesting comment what was the play there yeah the idea here is 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 platoon and for you know, I'll use this I'll use the same two guys using the column now you know, you can use whoever you have on your team. There's there's a few guys that get this out there, but uh, Curtis Granderson and Colby Rasmus are both lefty hitters on new teams. You know, in their salad days, they weren't pinch hit for right. I mean, they they played decent enough defense and could hit lefties well enough that they you know plus in a meaty lineup spot, top three, top four, 
they weren't taken out of games. These are both veterans on new teams. I'm curious how their new management, well, not, I mean, new, new to them, they're the regular, you know, the managers with a, the, with a previous manager, but new, you know, how their new team would handle their situation, especially Granderson, who you could just tell was in a platoon with Steve Pierce in that, well, the platoon in the seventh, eighth inning, or whenever uh, the the whenever a reliever is brought into the game, will they be pinch hit for every time, or will they stay in the game? And it turned out, at least until the it was a couple, only a couple weeks into the season when I wrote the piece, that it certainly looked like both of those guys were candidates to be pinch hit for, regardless. They'd reached their point of their career where you know the you know Steve Pierce is we either Pierce in the game or Santander or uh, any of the other you know Gentry for uh, I think it'd be Gentry for uh, for for Colby Rasmus so this is important because you know the shorter the sample of of games that you have the player active you know we can go from a week long standard league to the NFBC which is either you know if Friday changes so it's either a 3 or 4 day span or you have a daily league. The shorter that 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 time frame, the more important it is that your guy's not pinch hit for. And I, you know, I play DFS and I have a couple of leagues where, well, the NFBC, where I think even a three-day period, it's important to know these sorts of things. So I want to track that because you don't want to just, okay, Granderson's got three games against three righties, he's going to put him in the lineup. I now need to see what team he's playing and do they have lefty relievers and are, are they are they apt to bring in a lefty versus Granderson? that sort of thing because if he loses you know if you lose three at bats in three games there might be another player on your roster who's worth putting in oh i'm over over granderson so i wanted to track that sort of thing and it's you know play we, we talk dfs a little bit and it's also important in dfs that this guy you know looks like Grassmus has a great matchup a candom yards you know weak pitcher but as soon as the other team brings the lefty in in the sixth inning well he's out of the game you got two chances and i you know I'd maybe you take a lesser player with four chances Speaking of DFS, uh, Tout Daily, Tout Wars Daily uh, tournament is underway, and you have a few new wrinkles this year. Yeah, and uh, I, I should you know I, I remind you or let you know, or I'm sure you remember that you were one of the impetus or, or, or the impetus for one of them, and that is the, our finals are, are, are a little bit different. But before we get to there, just to people that are new to Tout Daily, it's a, T, it's a DFS league, and what we do is we have five four-week periods, and you, the cumulative points over each four-week period we award the top three and entrant into our finals we call it a golden ticket um, was that from Willy Wonka or or was it yeah it was yeah Willy Wonka, okay yeah. so we award a we award a golden ticket I want my ticket now anyway um so we have uh the finals for the you know 15 15 people in the finals and we award one to the person who got the most overall points over the course of the entire season as kind of a bonus. And we used to have just have a one day tournament and you know, the, the, the champion and you won it one year too. You know, you were the, you know, I, I finished I with the most points for two years. You, you, uh, you was it two years ago. You won it. We had Scott Pianowski win it the first year. Oh, Charlie won it the first year and Charlie Weegert. Then you won it. And last year, Derek Hardy was the, was a champion. Yep. Um, so actually it wasn't even Scott. Scott had the most points the first year. So it was Charlie, yourself, and Derek, then Scott, my, and then myself had the, the most points for, uh, the other couple of years. But anyway, so we said, you know, 
this this league idea is great. You know, we're fleshing out the luck, no injuries. So why have a you kind of it was during one of our talks is why have a one day tournament where you're reintroducing the variants that you spent so much time fleshing out and what made it the contest so cool. So what we did was we went to a old fashioned survivor tournament where the 16 people that get the golden tickets are going to play a, a, a tournament. And the top eight scores will advance to the second day. And the top four scores will then advance to the finals. Now, this, the, the classical tournament that they have in the DFS sites is whoever has the top score among those four in that last day wins. But we're going to keep a running total throughout the entire tournament. So it's going to be the highest point total combined for the three days. And obviously, the, you know, the highest totals will be on, from the, the people that make the final round. So, um, but, but if you come into the final day, uh, you know, with the fourth highest total, but actually, you know, crush that day, you will, you know, you'll end up winning and you probably would have ended up winning anyway, cause you had the highest total. But if you come in with the, the highest total and, uh, you can, you, you cannot, you can win the, you can win the, the last day, but not have the most overall points is in a long sort of way what I'm trying to say. And we feel that the champion is better served to have the total highest total over three days. And uh, so, you know, thanks to you, PD, we, uh, we've incorporated that into the finals. And, uh, you know, hopefully come uh, end of July, we're both talking about, you know, you know, the, the, we're, we're both in the running in that final day. And we're talking about how we're going to, uh, how we're going to set our lineups to compete against each other. I have to say, I like your chances better than I like mine. Uh, in fact, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know, I'm working against my own interests because uh, the year I won, um, I had a really good streak during the year. I, I was top 10 in four straight weeks. I didn't win any of the weeks, and that got me my golden ticket. And then uh, Brandon Geyer, uh, I've told the story here on B- Baseball HQ Radio, but Brandon Geyer had a miraculous last two innings in a game, and I no- nosed out Tristan Cockcroft by a point or a point and a half or something like that. And it was pretty much blind luck. And I'm f- perfectly willing to admit that in, in a one day game, anybody who says it's skill, I think is overstating the case. And, uh, but I th- do think it's fair that the, uh, the, f- the final champion is determined in a, in a longer format than just a single day. I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, how can people out there listening and out there in, in internet land follow along with the Tau tournament and especially get the benefits of what, how the experts are thinking about DFS selections. Yeah, so what we're going to do, or we've always done, is, well, we moved to Tuesdays this year. We had a huge pull, a huge um, uh, underground movement that became a, you know, ab- above-ground movement to, to move to Tuesdays because we used to do on Fridays and family interferes and all that sort of stuff, and that's fine. So we've moved to Tuesdays. Um, so every Tuesday we're going to post on-site our... Uh, volunteer basis, you know, a hitter and a pitcher that we're using that night, and those will be posted late thir- late Tuesday afternoon. Then on Wednesdays, I'll post a a wrap of the debut of the of the tournament of you know, the winning lineup and and some. No- I, I I write these, so you know, I'm, you know, my old trying to become a journalist and and you know, let Clay Link won last night, so I have to come up with you know, Link fences in competition, so you know, gonna channel my inner journalist that I never went to journalism school for and, uh, and and write these things up. But also on the site, if you look under the touts, we have everybody's Twitter handle. So if you ever want to contact a tout about, you know, their DFS lineup or about anything, you know, shoot them, shoot them a note on Twitter that they're all there. I think all but I think all but two of the 
all but two of them are uh, are on Twitter at this point. So uh, you know, and that's what they're there for. So uh, we, uh, you know, if you have a question about a lineup or whatever, what anybody does, uh, maybe on the fat piece or the the tout roundtable that we have, that those Twitter handles are always there. So um, you know, hopefully we'll we'll look at that. Now we're looking into making the the actual contest publicly viewable. I have to. It was sort of scrambling to pull it together. So that's my next step. And we do what is publicly viewable are the running totals of the of the scores. So hopefully we will make it so that you can follow along on the uh, on the website to see you know to, to to root for your favorite tout real time. But at the very least you get to know our hitters and pitchers and 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 some other sort of factoids along the way with uh with respect to our lineups. Well, I'm sure it's going to be a ton of fun. It was uh, the last, ever since I've got involved with it, I've enjoyed it. I'm not a DFS guy, but it's it's fun to take part in it at this in this limited way because there's the friendly competition angle of it. It gives us something to write about sometimes, and it's just uh, generally a lot of fun. And I really enjoy the, uh, the write-ups in the afternoon of the game that I think could uh, provide DFS players on those Tuesdays with some insights into why the, why the experts are looking at certain players. And a lot of these experts are really, really good DFS players, including you, but Derek's a really good player. And uh, other guys uh, that work at Baseball HQ and elsewhere are really, really solid DFS players. So when they say, here's why I'm taking this particular pitcher, especially if there's any kind of consensus, it's worth looking at. Yep, yep. Vlad, Vlad Settler's in there. He writes, uh, uh, you know, known to HQ people. So there's some definitely some people that are uh, prominent in the DFS industry or the DFS players. So uh, no, you're right. It's, it, it is fun. It, 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 in, in, and it's sort of a precursor. Maybe we'll talk a little bit more about it next week. My Rotowire piece that will be coming out later today, the first half of it is basically I started with it. I'm an, I'm an unabashed wonk for the DFS leagues. And I just—it doesn't have to be about the money. It, I just—I I really enjoy playing this league format. It fleshes out the injury aspect of it. There's still—you can—we we alluded to it earlier as far as uh, matchup data. Uh, you know, Granderson, Erasmus. There, there's there's ways to uh, use short-term analysis to get some tangible, you know, an uh, evaluation on a on a on a on a pitcher hitter matchup so there is some some analysis that goes into daily dfs that transcends all fantasy even your to me your the expectation of the player hitter or pitcher which is the same whether you're playing seasonal or dfs is you know that's where you start what do you think mike trout is going to do what do you think clayton kershaw is going to do and now you just have to adjust it for that particular day the park the weather Etc. And one of the things Derek Carty mentioned when I was talking to him earlier in the show is umpires. Yes. You get a chance to use those umpires, really important consideration as well. Uh, Todd Zola, thanks a million for helping us out as usual, and we'll talk to you again next week. Absolutely. Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire, and appears here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I want to talk about how we consider batters' exit velocities. As you might have heard, tons of new tools are arriving in baseball. Stadiums have so many radars, lasers, sonars, and cameras that they're like CIA installations, plus expensive hot dogs and ridiculously expensive beer. One of the interesting challenges in all of this besides finding a mortgage lender to help you afford a hot dog and a beer, is how to apply all the data pouring in from the various measurement systems. 
One of the really hot metrics these days is exit velocity, the speed at which a batted ball leaves the bat. We see references to exit velocity everywhere nowadays, even the notoriously slow adapters who run baseball broadcasts. And frankly, the fact that the booth ninnies have enthusiastically embraced exit velocity makes me suspicious the stat is of any use at all. But their endorsement doesn't automatically mean the whole thing is a bad idea. Even the math-averse, analysis-averse booth ninnies can get their heads around the speed of the batted ball, as they previously did with the thrown ball. In fact, pitch velocity is so ubiquitous it's become something of a crutch for baseball announcers. But that's a rant for another day. In the more analytically inclined fantasy community, exit velocity has also become quickly established as a go-to metric. But here's the thing. I wondered if it was being used in the best possible way. Because I hear a lot of emphasis on average exit velocity, and I wonder if that has the potential to be misleading. I thought maybe what we need to know about a hitter is not average exit velocity, but the frequency of high-velocity batted balls. In other words, it ain't how hard the batter hits it, but how often the batter hits it hard. The issue with averages is that they can sometimes disguise unusual distributions of values. Here's an example. Say you're at a stats seminar in a large hotel convention room with a thousand other guys, and you learn that the average net worth of all the guys in the room taken together is a $200,000. You're worth about two hundred grand. Presumably, you don't play baseball for a living, and so are most of the other guys you know in the room as well. So, the average is pretty accurate in describing not only the total of the people in the room, but each individual person in the room. They're all going to be worth around 200000 Meanwhile, your buddy is at a baseball card convention in another large hotel conference room with another 1,000 guys. The average net worth here, also 200 large. You know you're worth well less than that amount. That's what investing in baseball cards will do to your fortune. And you know that so are the other insightful valuators in the room with you. But over there in the corner signing autographs is Derek Jeter, taking time off from imploding the Marlins. And, of course, his $185 million net worth has inflated the average of the overall room, so much that the average net worth of everyone other than Derek Jeter is about fifteen grand. But the overall net worth... Yeah, still 200000 At this juncture, you might well be asking what all of this has to do with exit velocity. And frankly, I'm glad you asked, because I'm kind of losing track of that myself. Oh, now I remember. Just because a batter averages a high exit velocity might not mean he has a lot of high exit velocity batted balls. His average could be inflated by a small number of very high exit velocity batted balls, which are hugely productive in fantasy terms, and that would offset many poorly hit balls, which aren't. So I looked at 2017, and I found a list of the 21 hitters, minimum 200 plate appearances, who had average exit velocities of 91 miles per hour or higher. At the top of the list, Aaron Judge, Nelson Cruz, Joey Gallo, Miguel Sano, all at 95, 93 like that. At the bottom of the list, Jose Abreu, Adam Lind, Bryce Harper, Josh Donaldson, Alex Avila, and a few other guys at 91. Overall, it's a pretty respectable list. A lot of fine hitters. 
But when I see names like Adam Lind and Kendris Morales, and Alex Avila especially, it makes me wonder if we're missing something, if there's something going on with the shape of those averages. Are they representative of the individual hitters? Or do some of the batters in the list have a Derek Jeter in the convention hall raising their average exit value? So I did some analysis and actually, no. I studied on it for a spell, and my hypothesis lasted about as long as Britney Spears' marriage to whatever that guy's name was. Among the bottom guys on the list, it turned out they all topped 90 miles an hour in exit velocity between 55 and 60% of their batted ball events. They squeezed out some batted balls lower than 60 miles an hour, but all at about the same rates as well, around 3 to 4% of their batted ball events. At the top of the list, it was much the same story, although the number of batted ball events over 90 miles an hour was a little higher, up around the low 60% range. Chris with a K Davis was the outlier here at fully 70% of his batted balls. Davis and Nelson Cruz also had more batted balls under 60 miles an hour, and they were the only hitters whose median exit velocities were lower than their average exit velocities, so there might have been a bit of average inflating going on with those two. When we think about it in general, we're still learning our way around a lot of these new metrics, and they should and will be explored in more detail, both here and elsewhere. For now, though, I think we can feel pretty comfortable in suggesting that hitters who have high exit velocities are probably going to be pretty productive hitters. On the average, anyway. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox every Thursday in our weekly free e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. You can also read Master Notes for free at the Baseball HQ website. And of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Thursday, April the 12th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 12 of the 2018 Fantasy Baseball season. I should also thank our guest for this Thursday edition of our show, Derek Carty from ESPN and Roto Grinders and the developer of The Bat Daily Fantasy Projections Tool. I've talked with Derek over the years several times at industry events like First Pitch Arizona and Tout Wars, and I've always been impressed with how knowledgeable he is and how articulate he is, and I thought he'd make a terrific guest on the program, and I was glad to find out he was every bit of that. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Minor League Minute was presented by Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. Our Frequent Flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky, and our Pitcher Matchups analyst was Baseball HQ's Greg Fishwick. Thanks as well, as always, to Todd Zola, our regular weekly guest on Talk with Todd. I'm Patrick Davitt, your Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums, and remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow me on my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast or an old joke is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to iTunes and other podcast providers and add to our star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going by attracting new listeners. Thanks again for being an old listener. 
We'll be back again next Thursday with another edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.